Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. This is the reading of the Darley Routier Trial Testimony, Part 10. Now we are starting day five of the trial, which occurred on January 10th of 1997. On this day, there were actually eight witnesses in total. And so it's quite long. Uh, Today, we're going to start with the defense motion for mistrial. Uh, We'll then hear from Denise Falk, uh, who is another nurse who attended to Darley in the ICU. And then we'll move on to the testimony of Thomas Dean Ward. And Thomas Ward was a peace officer with the city of Rowlett. His testimony is quite long. And then after that, I will wrap up this episode with the testimony of Gustavo Guzman Jr., who at the time was an 18-year-old who on the morning of the crime found strange items in his backyard not far from the Routier home. So that will be interesting. Before we get into this episode, let's review some of the information that we learned in the last episode, episode number 58. Now, in this episode, we heard from Diane Holland and Paige Campbell, both of them ICU nurses at Baylor. Now, Diane testified overhearing some conversation that Darley was having with someone else while she was in the room. And the conversation was about a strange car in the neighborhood the night of the crime. Now, she couldn't remember what Darley had to say about the car, but I found it convenient that she could remember almost everything else. Again, we heard lots and lots of testimony about Darley's arm bruises. And while uh, Diane is still on the stand and being cross-examined, she is asked how often she's met with the prosecution team. She said it was about five times. And who she has met with since being subpoenaed. And I personally found it interesting that she referred to Mr. Shook, who is the head of the prosecution team, as Toby, and then two others named Anita and Basillo. Now, she used these more friendlier names rather than professionally referring to the people that she spoke with. Now, during questioning, She is asked about one of the meetings with the prosecution and is asked when she met with Mr. Shook. And she then asked if that was even if that was Toby's last name, because she didn't even know what his last name was. She's asked who was in this meeting. And uh, she had said that it was Toby and her. And at this point, she refers to Sherry Wallace, who is the assistant district attorney of Dallas County, Texas. Mr. Mosty of the defense team says, Miss Wallace, Diane couldn't remember her name, but she knew that she had met with her. She said, that's right. And Bosillo was also there, but she didn't talk to him. She talked with Toby and Miss Wallace. She then said that just that morning, she had met with Toby alone. She's further asked about a meeting with not only her and Toby, but Toby and other nurses who were there to testify to look at pictures. So this meeting was to go in, look at these pictures, and evidently all the other nurses that were testifying on that day were there. The front desk of the hotel where everyone was staying 
was instructed to call all of the people from Baylor who were there and tell them to meet them in Toby's room at noon on Wednesday. Now she said, this is Diane. She said that Jody Cotner was there, as was uh, Jody Fitz, Chris Wilgus, Paige Campbell, who is the one that testified after Diane, and Denise Falk, uh, who was another nurse that we will hear from shortly. She also said that Patrick Dillon, the doctor, was also there, and he appeared and testified earlier in that day, on that day. And again, I'm referring to episode number 58. So if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that one. Nearly all of the people who had testified on that day, on January 9th, had been called to Toby Shook's hotel room at noon the previous day to go over these arm bruise pictures of Darley. Now, Diane said that this meeting lasted around 45 minutes to an hour. They were all passing around the photos and discussing what they showed or what they didn't show. She then said how they all gave their two cents worth regarding the bruising in the photos that they were shown. I honestly, when this came up in court, I honestly wish I could have seen Mr. Shook's face while this was happening. This is not a good look for the prosecution. And I'm sure we'll get to that when it comes to this motion for mistrial, which we're going to hear very shortly. Now, when Paige Campbell, the second ICU nurse, got on the stand and was testifying, she too was asked about this meeting in Mr. Shook's room. She hadn't actually been notified of it, according to her, but she said that it was another nurse that told her about this meeting. And she didn't even know whose room it was that they were going to at least according to Paige. She played down the meeting and said that everyone was talking at once and she never really heard what anyone else had said. Uh, She did say that everyone made comments on the bruising photos. She believes the meeting only took around 15 minutes. Now, this is a pretty significant difference from Diane's testimony of 45 minutes to an hour. So with all that said and that little bit of a wrap-up, from episode number 58. Let's get on to the first item on the agenda for this day and this episode, which is the defense's motion for mistrial. Now, the first thing that I want to point out is that this uh, defense motion for mistrial is going to be brought in front of the judge by a Mr. John Hagler. Now, who he is, is he is an attorney who appeared for the purpose of Darley's appeal. So just so you know, this is a little bit of a different name that we have not heard quite yet. So that is who John Hagler is. So anyway, this is uh, how it played out. The court says, all right, let's go on the record. Today is Friday, January 10th. All right, let the record reflect that these proceedings are being, well, where is Mr. Hagler? Well, there he is. Everybody, please have a seat. All right, let the record reflect that these proceedings are being held outside the presence of the jury and all parties of the trial are present. Mr. Hagler. At this point, Mr. John Hagler begins to speak. Yes, Your Honor. At this time, Your Honor, we would move for a mistrial based on a violation of the rule. Violation of Rule 613 in the Texas Rules of Criminal Evidence. 
Your Honor, at the beginning of this trial, the rule was invoked, and this court admonished those witnesses who were sworn that they were to comply with the requirements of the rule. Now, during the first day of testimony, some damaging testimony was elicited, brought out by the defense in this case, regarding the bruising and the age of the bruises on the defendant's arm. After that, testimony was brought out in front of the jury through cross-examination of a number of witnesses. We were able to, and I might say the court noted, I would suspect, the reluctance of the witnesses. I'm referring to the Baylor nurses and employees. Their reluctance to mention that there was a clandestine meeting that occurred at the Holiday Inn. Now, Your Honor, I might note again that although these witnesses, again, the Baylor personnel, were not sworn in at the time of the commencement of this trial, Your Honor, still the spirit of the rule, the purpose of the rule is to avoid either party from shading, influencing, or manipulating the testimony of witnesses that will come out during the course of the trial. These Baylor employees, I might add, were here. They were obviously going to be witnesses for the state. And we would submit that they likewise fell under the scope of the rule and Rule 613. Now, Your Honor, again, we, with great reluctance, did the witnesses disclose the nature of this meeting. And as those witnesses testified, it became readily apparent that there was this clandestine meeting in which the nature and scope and age of the bruising was discussed. And if the court will recall, these matters were never brought out earlier until damaging testimony was offered on the first day of the trial. Now, Your Honor, it seems, and of course the court heard the testimony, but it's extraordinary that all of the testimony of the Baylor employees has now been conformed as to the age of the bruising. And we would submit, Your Honor, that it's readily apparent from the testimony of those witnesses that they were influenced, that their testimony was molded, and for lack of other words, was cooked up by the state in order to confront the damaging testimony that was offered the first day in this trial. For that reason, Your Honor, at this point in time, we have no way of knowing what their original testimony would have been regarding the age of the wounds. The harm has been done on an important issue in this case, and we would ask that this court grant a mistrial due to the damaging nature of such testimony. At this point, Mr. Douglas Mulder, who is part of the defense team, says, Your Honor, just one thing I might add. Both sides were admonished. Once the rule was invoked, the court admonished us to make sure that our witnesses make sure that we conformed our conduct to the rule of evidence, and they were likewise admonished. So the rule was in effect. It was in effect for all witnesses, not just those sworn in here. I mean, it's reprehensible. The court then says, all right, motion denied. Thank you. And to be honest, this is the first time I've read this. That was pretty abrupt. Um, just my personal opinion, but, you know, it doesn't even seem like any thought was given to it. So anyway, let's continue. The next person up to the stand or the next witness, now that the jury has been brought back into the room, 
is Denise Falk, and she was an ICU, a neurosurgical trauma nurse on duty the morning of June the 6th. And her examination begins by Mr. Toby Shook, again, head of the prosecution team. State your name, please. My name is Denise Renee Falk. Would you spell your last name, please? F-A-U-L-K. And how are you employed? I'm a registered nurse. And where do you work? I work at Baylor Healthcare System. Okay, tell the jury your educational and professional training for the position that you hold as a nurse, please. I attended Texas Tech University and did some undergraduate work there. And I have my RN diploma from the Methodist School of Nursing in Lubbock. Okay, how long have you worked at Baylor? A year and a half. And what section of that hospital are you assigned? I'm assigned to the 4 North ICU, which is trauma slash neuro ICU. And what are your duties there? I care for the critically ill and make sure that my patients are hemodynamically stable. All right, let me turn your attention to the 6th day of June, 1996, and ask you if you came on duty that day. Yes. What time did you come to work? I came to work at 6.45. Okay, in the evening? Yes. And how long a shift were you working? I worked 12 hours. Okay, sometime during that day, did you have Darlie Routier as your patient? Yes. What time did you get her as a patient? I had her at 11 o'clock that night. Okay, until seven o'clock in the morning. Until seven o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. And were you her nurse the rest of the evening and all through the morning? Yes. Okay. Did you have any other patients? Yes. How many other patients did you have? I had one. Okay. And did you speak to Miss Routier while you worked there through the morning hours? Yes, I did. Describe her condition at the time that you spoke to her when you were her nurse. She was very stable and very much in her right mind. Okay, were you able to understand her and she able to understand you? Yes, sir. Y'all had no trouble communicating. No. Sometime during the evening, did you speak to her about what had happened to her? Yes. Okay, about what time was that? It was around four o'clock in the morning. Okay, and where were you? I was at her bedside, standing or sitting. I was sitting in the chair. Okay, and what position was she in? She was laying on her right side in her bed, just kind of, we lay patients propped up with pillows lying on her right side, looking at me, talking. How far away from her were you? Probably like from here to the end of this right here. Okay. About two or three feet? Mm-hmm. Okay. You will have to answer yes or no. Yes. Okay. And you had her, was she propped to one side, you say? She was laying on her right side, kind of propped in bed. Okay. During the day, do y'all move patients from one side to the other, prop them up? Yes, we do. What is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is so they will have circulation to their skin 
and they won't have any skin breakdown. Okay. And as she was there on her right side talking to you, did the subject of why she was there and what had happened to her come up? Yes, it did. How did it come up? I asked her if she remembered anything that happened. Okay. And was she able to relate to you what happened? Yes. Okay. What did she say? Or where was she when all this started? She said that she was downstairs in her house sleeping on the couch and her two boys were downstairs and they had been watching TV, a big screen TV. And that what started waking her up was her little boy started crying. Okay, did she say where her husband was when all of this was going on? She said that he was upstairs with the little baby. Okay, so she had been downstairs with her two boys watching TV. Yes. And then what woke her up was her five-year-old crying. Yes. Okay. Then what did she say happened? She said that her, she felt a struggle like at her neck. Okay. And the man started wrestling with her. Okay. Did she say where she was when the struggle at her neck and the wrestling occurred? She was on the couch. Okay, what's the next thing that she told you? She said that she started yelling and that he ran off and he had dropped the knife and she picked it up. Okay, did she say which way that he ran? No, sir. Okay, did she describe to you where she went to pick up the knife? No. Did she tell you anything that happened when he was running away after she yelled out? She said that he ran into a wine rack holder, okay, and that it made a big crack noise. He ran into a wine rack holder? Mm-hmm. Okay, and what happened when he ran into the wine rack holder? Well, that's when she really, I think that's when she really started really waking up. That's what she said. She heard a loud crack noise. Mm-hmm. And then he dropped the knife. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Did she, well, what's the next thing she told you? She said that she remembered that it was, the knife came from her butcher block from her kitchen because it had a white handle on it. Okay. Now, were you asking her questions during this? The only one that I asked her was how she knew it was hers. She said, because it had a white handle. Oh, okay. Regarding the knife? Mm-hmm. What did she say she did then? She turned the light on and saw her two boys laying on the floor and she screamed. And she just, when she was telling me this, she just kept saying that there was blood everywhere. And then she said her husband came downstairs and that's when she had realized she had been stabbed and he started doing CPR on the little boy and she called 911. Her husband came down after she screamed mm-hmm, and did CPR on the little boy mm-hmm, and she called 911. Mm-hmm. Did she tell you anything else about what happened? Well, she said that when her husband was doing CPR, that he kept saying, hang in there, babies, hang in there. And she said there was just blood everywhere. 
Okay, when she told you this story, what was her demeanor? She was pretty calm when she was talking. I just remember looking at the cardiac monitor and her heart rate had gone up just a little bit. Okay, was she crying at all when she told you the story? No, sir. Okay, did you see her cry some during the night when you were with her? I saw her eyes would get a little wet, but I never really saw tears go down her face. Okay, have you dealt with people before that have lost loved ones or close relatives? Yes, sir. Children? Yes, sir. And have you come in contact with them and observed their reactions? Yes, sir. What is the usual reaction in a situation like this? The usual reaction when someone loses someone, close family members, they can be ballistic or just beside themselves. Usually they're in disbelief or in denial and a lot of people get very angry. Okay, did Darlie Routier's reaction differ from what you had seen in your experience? Well, it was different in that she didn't portray those characteristics. Okay, now during the evening, did you say that you bathed her? Yes, sir. Okay, and about what time did that take place? That was... I had got her at 11 o'clock that night and we bathed her pretty soon after that, probably around midnight. Okay. And during your shift, did you, you know, take careful notice of her injuries and care for her? Yes, sir. Did you ever notice? Well, was there an injury to her right arm? She had a stab wound to her right arm. Okay. Did you see any other injuries to her right arm? No, sir. Okay, let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 52-B. Do you recognize that as a photograph of the defendant? Yes. Do you see her right arm there? Uh-huh. Do you see that large bruising down the right arm? Mm-hmm. Did you see any evidence of that type of injury at any time during your shift? I didn't. I did not. Okay, when you bathed her, was her right arm bathed? Yes. And was it moved about? Mm-hmm. Did she ever complain of any pain other than the cut she received? No, not through the night. Okay, that type of bruising. Have you seen that type of bruising before in your nursing? Working in trauma, I have seen blunt trauma to the face, like in car accidents, but not that big to the arm. Okay, that's a pretty large bruise, is it not? Yes, sir, it is. Okay, you didn't see any evidence of that whatsoever? No. Mr. Mulder says, object to leading. The court says, overruled, go ahead. Mr. Shook then says, is that the kind of thing you look for when you're caring for someone in ICU? Yes. In our assessment, we do a head to toe assessment. Okay. And if you had seen something like that, do you take note of it? Yes. Okay. Now, Mrs. Falk, after, well, after your shift or sometime after your shift, did you make some personal notes about what you talked about with Mrs. Routier? Yes, I did. When was that? That was the weekend after I took care of her. Okay. And where did you make those notes? In my apartment. Okay. Did you do that at anyone's request? No. Just did that on your own? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and why did you decide to make some notes? I got home and started thinking about what she had said. And I thought it was weird that when she was telling me that she was laying on her right side, that her, the way her stab wounds were, she had a dressing on them most of the night. So I didn't look at them until that morning when the doctor had come in to take the dressing off. But I didn't get a very close look at it. But from, from what I heard, they were pretty straight cuts. And I just thought it was weird that she would be laying on her right side the way her cuts were. Okay, so you made these notations of the story she had told you. Yes, sir. Okay, now did you call up the police and tell them that you had some notes for them or anything like that? No. Where did you keep them? I kept them in my little safety thing in my closet. Okay, when is the first time you brought those out again? I brought them out, well, when y'all had contacted me. Okay, and when do you say y'all, are you referring to myself and investigator Basillo? Yes. Do you recall about when that was? Around October. Okay, and did we come visit you there at your apartment? Yes, sir. And then did you show us the notes that you had made and turn those over to us? Yes, I did. And we have talked on a couple of other times, have we not? Yes, sir. Do you remember how many times that I have met with you? Probably four times. Okay, couple of times in your apartment? Mm-hmm. And then since you were down here in Kerrville, we have met? We met on Tuesday around noon and then on Tuesday evening. Okay, and on Tuesday at noon, there were other nurses, other people from Baylor there. Is that right? Mr. Mulder says, object to the leading judge. If he's going to continue to lead and just ask the witness to agree with him, he ought to be sworn in one way or the other. The court then says the leading objection is sufficient, Mr. Mulder. Thank you. Sustained. Let's rephrase our question. Mr. Toby Shook then continues. About how many people were there Tuesday at noon? About 10. Okay. And did I ask you some, well, what went on? Were questions asked at that meeting? The pictures were shown and we were asked if we had ever seen the bruise before. Okay. Did I go over some of the same questions that you answered to this jury? A little bit at noon. Okay. Did I talk with you at greater length that evening? Yes, sir. Okay. Who was all present when we talked later that evening? Tuesday evening? Yes. You and Mr. Basillo. Okay. Let me show you this three-page document that has been marked as States Exhibit 57 and let you take a look at those three pages and see if you recognize them. Yes, I do. Are those the personal notes that you made in regards to the things that Mrs. Routier told you that evening on the shift as you cared for her? Yes, sir. Okay. Judge, we will pass the witness. Mr. Mosty then says, may I read this? The court says, you may indeed. At this point, the cross-examination by the defense by Mr. Richard Mosty then begins. Mrs. Falk, how are you this morning? Fine, thank you. How long have you been in Kerrville? I've been in Kerrville since Monday night. Are you anxious to get home? Yes, sir. Okay, 
Let me make sure that I understand where your notes are. And Mrs. Falk, I'm going to show you what is in evidence as hospital records. And I just want to see if I know where your notes start. Okay. And where they end. And I think I have handed you one that, mm-hmm. When you first sign in your notes, do you put your full name? Yes. You put your initial and last name and RN or whatever your license is. And do you start by, quote, we agree with the shift assessment done by P. Campbell? Yes. Is that your first notation? Yes. And that's Paige Campbell? Yes, sir. Who was immediately before you? Yes. Now, is she your supervisor or is she over you? I didn't understand that. Paige Campbell, she was just charge nurse that night and she's a fellow employee. Okay, with me. She's a charge nurse. She was that night just on my shift from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So is that who you would report to, for lack of a better term, your superior on that shift. Yes, sir. Okay. Now then show me where your last note is then. The next page where I discontinued her Foley catheter. Okay. Is that at 7.10 a.m.? Yes, sir. And then I guess you went off duty then about 7.10 a.m.? Mm-hmm. Correct? Yes. So that's all within about 24 hours, in the first 24 hours of her stay in the hospital. Yes, sir. And if I understand, at some time in that evening, you bathed her. Yes, sir. What time? It was around midnight. Okay. And when you bathed her, she was, she stayed in the bed? Yes, sir. Was she laying down, essentially? Yes, sir. And I think you said that part of your duties were, in fact, to move her to different positions. Yes, sir. We help assist patients if they're not mobile. You want patients to move around so that they don't get bed sores and things like that, don't you? Yes, sir. And you said, I think you used the phrase, quote, she was in her right mind. Yes, so I take it by that, that you think she was acting appropriately. Yes. To whatever the circumstances that were going on, you thought that her behavior or her responses were appropriate for these circumstances. No, I don't think her responses were appropriate. I thought she was coherent. Okay. And is that because you, how did you say on how she reacted, not emotionally? I just remember when I was bathing her that she, there was no remorse, no tears, just that she just really stood out in my mind that we were cleaning blood from her feet and she was very unemotional. Okay. And I think you said something about that she was making some kind of statements of denial about, how did you say that? I said that that's normal for people to be in denial to make, but she never said any statements about being in denial over the loss of her sons. 
was she holding? Did she have those pictures there of the boys with her? She asked for them one time when we were bathing her and she would look at them. She looked at them and kind of whined a little bit. Kind of whined? Where does that word whine come from? Pretty subjective. It's pretty subjective? Yes. Sort of. Would you think it's unusual that two people might, two or three or however many people might choose that subjective phrase whine to describe what happened? Not if that's what she was doing. And do you think that I might think that whining was different than what you might think whining is? Mr. Toby Shook then says, Judge, I'll object. That question calls on what Mr. Mosty thinks is improper and speculative. The court then says, sustained, rephrase your question. He then continues. Now you have some training in grief, don't you? Dealing with families that are grieving. And you understand that people do different grieving. They grieve in different ways, don't they? Yes, sir. And do you understand that there are different sort of been identified as stages of grief? Yes, sir. Do you remember how many stages there are? There's about four stages and people go through those in different ways, don't they? Some people, yes, sir, they can. And sometimes they do them in different orders. And not necessarily. You disagree with that? Yes, okay. Tell me, what is the first stage of grief for all people then? Well, the first stage would be disbelief. Disbelief, that's true in every circumstance? Yes, okay. What's the second one? It would be that they would get angry, okay? And what's the third one? The third one is that they would come to acceptance. To acceptance? Yes, all right. And what is the fourth one? The fourth one is that they console. They would have some kind of resource, okay? To, for comfort. Is that it that I'm aware of? And everyone goes through those in the same order? Well, in my opinion, yes. And how long does each of them last? I don't know. Well, is that the same for everybody? I honestly don't know. Okay. Let me talk to you a little bit about that then. Let me show you what I have marked as Defendant's Exhibit 18. Have you seen, in part of your training, have you seen pamphlets like this on dealing with grief? I have, yes. Okay, let me ask you if you agree with this statement. That in shock and denial, at this point, Mr. Toby Shook says, Judge, I'll object to him reading from a document not in evidence. And also, she hasn't recognized this particular pamphlet as anyone that she's used or is familiar with. The court then says, I'll sustain the objection. Mr. Mosty then says, do you agree with the statement that shock and denial often follow grief, follow the loss of a loved one? Yes, I do. Do you agree with the statement that that is especially true if a loss occurs suddenly? Yes. Do you agree with the statement that an emotional numbness may set in 
that shock and denial stage. Yes, I do, but I don't think starting out, okay, you don't think that that emotional, when does that emotional numbness set in? I honestly don't know, but you know it doesn't set in within 24 hours. I don't know. Okay, you don't know when someone might go into emotional numbness, do you? No. And do you agree with the statement that that any emotional numbness may last from hours to weeks or longer? You're saying that emotional numbness can be that it might last a matter of hours and might last a number of days, might last weeks. I don't know how long. I think it's very individualistic. All right. And so if someone is emotionally numb, is that sort of what you would characterize as, how would I say, stone-faced? Yes, that's emotional numbness. Yes, sort of like in a stupor, right? When I think of stupor, I think of close to comatose. And I don't think that's normal for someone that's just lost. Okay, and that's sort of, you agree that the emotional stupor might be sort of a blank look on someone's face. That stupor is? Emotional numbness might have just sort of no reaction. Yes, they can. If I'm emotionally numb, yes. And that's in nursing terms, you would call that a flat affect, wouldn't you? Yes, okay. And that's what she was exhibiting that night, wasn't it? A flat affect? Yes. A numbness? I would say a flat affect. Okay, well, you agreed with me a minute ago that that was that numbness, that the stone face, that lack of expression are of those are indicative of flat affect, aren't they? Characteristics, yes. Okay, just one point of clarification. In this description, you talked about the TV. And is it your understanding that the TV was on? That they had fallen asleep while watching TV? I do not know that. Oh, she didn't say. So you don't know whether it was on or off? No, sir. Now, let's talk a little bit about stupor. When someone is awoken... I guess people awake differently, don't they? Awaken from sleep or, well, just this morning, probably everybody here woke up somewhat differently. Yes, sir. Some pop right out of bed, some don't. Yes, sir. And that depends no matter whether you're a heavy or a light sleeper. There's something known as when you get into a deep sleep. Yes, even people that sleep just three or four hours a night have some kind of deep sleep. I don't know. I know that deep sleep is called REM, but I don't exactly know how long that it takes to take place. Yeah, okay. And if someone wakes from a deep sleep, they have you ever woken up in the night sort of walking around and not knowing what room you were in? Yes, sir. And you've gone and... I've ended up like in a room and I'm feeling around. And then in a little while, you sort of wake up and realize where you are and go back to bed. Yes, sir. Okay. And that I would sort of call that almost like a stupor. Would you? No, sir. I wouldn't call it a stupor. 
Okay, it was just, as you wake up, sometimes you're not real clear on what you're doing. Exactly, yes. As a matter of fact, what you said was that what Darlie described to you was that it wasn't until she was already up and moving that she that she really sort of woke up and figured out what was going on. I would have to look at my notes. You don't remember testifying to that? I would have to look at my notes at what she said. I'm not asking you about your notes. I'm asking you if you remember. Just Mr. Shook then says, judge, judge. The witness has asked if she could review her notes to answer his question. And I submit that she should be allowed to do that. Mr. Mosty then says, well, I'm not asking about her notes, your honor. The court then says, well, let's go on to the next question then. Mr. Mosty says, I'm asking if you remember that less than 15 minutes ago, stating that that was that he ran into the wine rack holder and there was a big crash and that's when she really woke up. She told me that she, wait, Mrs. Falk, my question is, do you remember testifying to that not 15 minutes ago? Yes, sir. Okay. And so that is consistent with someone who awakes and is not fully awake, who in a moment really comes awake, right? Can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Okay. Well, what Mrs. Routier described to you was that something was happening before she was fully awake. Mr. Shook then says, Judge, I'll object to speculation. He's trying to go into an interpretation of what Mrs. Routier told this witness. She's only repeated what she told her. She can't interpret what she meant by it. The court then says, well, I understand I'll overrule that objection, but I'll answer the questions as succinctly and accurately as you know how. When a question has been answered, Mr. Mosty, please go on to your next question. Mr. Mosty then says, that's what Mrs. Routier described to you, wasn't it? Being awakened with something happening, but not fully awake. She could have been, but I don't know her state. Well, I'm just asking you what she said. That's when she really woke up. Yes, that's what she said. So until she really woke up, she was not really awake. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so what happened? While she was describing what happened on the couch was a time when she said she was not fully awake. Mr. Toby Shook again says, Judge, I'll object again. He's going into speculation. The court then says, all right. Mr. Shook says, it's just his interpretation. The court then says, I'll overrule that objection as the question is couched. If you know that question, if you know the answer, answer it. But let's get brief questions, brief answers. Move on to the next question. Go ahead, please. Mr. Mosty then says, could you answer the question? Can you repeat the question? Before the wine rack, Mrs. Routier told you that she was not fully awake. Yes, sir. She said that what kind of woke her up was her boys crying. And then what really woke her up was the loud crack noise. All right. And that sort of like when you're walking around your house, you're kind of awake and you kind of know, but until you're fully awake, you don't really know where you are or what you've been doing. Yes, sir. 
Now, you told me that you bathed her about midnight. Is that right? Yes, sir. And when you bathed her, were her feet bloody? Yes, sir. So it's fair to say that when you bathed her at midnight, no one had washed her feet at that point. And no, sir. You were the first person to wash those bloody feet? Yes, sir. And you know that for a fact, don't you? Yes, sir, I do. You remember that you, you were by yourself? I was with Paige Campbell. But Paige Campbell had not washed her feet off earlier, had she? No. I guess Paige was helping you. Yes. And you were sort of in charge of that? Yes, of the bath. Okay. But you were the one who washed off, washed the blood off of her feet? From what I remember, Paige and I, usually when you have somebody helping you bathe, you just kind of both take one side of the body. So she took the one leg and I took the other one. Okay, but there's no question that her feet had not been washed before that, had they? No, sir, they had not. And that's the kind of thing that sort of stands out in your memory, doesn't it? Yes, sir. I mean blood on someone and having to wash it off. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that an ICU nurse would get wrong, would they? I mean, you wouldn't forget Mr. Toby Shook again says, again, I'll object to speculation as to what the court then says sustained. Please answer the questions as precise as you can. Give precise answer answers and move on to the next question. Mr. Mosty then continues. Well, for instance, do you think that you know what nurses do in ICU, don't you? Yes. And you know what the people that you're with do, don't you? I know their duties. I don't know exactly what they do all the time. Well, I understand. But you know that they're accurate and that they're very attentive to detail. Yes, sir. ICU nurses are, aren't they? Yes. And the... And record things in these notes that are significant, don't they? Yes, sir. Matter of fact, that's part of your training is to be very accurate and be very observant of your patients. Yes. And that's one of the reasons that you only have one or two people is so that you can't, that you do have the time to devote to those people. Yes. And to be observant of what they're doing. Yes. And you know Paige Campbell to be that same way, don't you? Yes, sir. Now, did you, when you washed her, did you notice any blood on the right forearm? I don't remember. I'm sure she had blood. But from what I can remember, when I got report, they had said that they had kind of cleaned her hands off and her arms, I believe. So you do not remember any blood on her arms. There could have been, but I don't remember seeing it specifically that stood out in my mind. So there are some things of this visit that you remember and some things that you don't remember. Some things are vague. Some things stand out. But on the blood on the arm, you can't be clear about that? Correct. Now, do you know, after your shift, did Mrs. Routier stay in ICU? Can you tell that from the notes? After my shift? Yes. Yes, she stayed. I don't know how long. Okay. 
Now, I guess part of what you do with trauma people is you want to observe and see if they start feeling some pain that they didn't feel before, that kind of thing. Yes, we monitor their comfort. What's their progress? And do they have some different complaint or a new complaint or something? Yes. And is it your experience that sometimes as people are in a in the room for a while, that they will complain about, you know, something else is bothering me? Yes. If a person did have an injury to the right arm or so, would you expect them to complain of pain in that arm? Yes, I would. And at various times, Mrs. Routier complained of pain in her right arm, didn't she? In your notes? No, she, I remember asking her a couple times through the night if she was hurting and it wasn't until that morning. Her mother came into the room and she was asking for some pain medication. Okay, and that's not unusual that someone has to be given pain medication earlier in the day. They do well it wears off and they ask for more pain medication. That's normal, yes. So a person will have a period where there is no pain, they're moving fine, yes. Now, you know, for instance, do you not, that right after your shift, that Mrs. Routier did complain of pain in her right shoulder, didn't she? No, I did not know that. Didn't know that from the notes? Not after my shift, I didn't read. You didn't read the next, who followed you? The next nurse after me was Agnes. Is that, is Agnes this first note, 720? Yes, sir. Okay, read the note at the bottom of that page that Agnes made. What does the D stand for? Data, okay, and the CO complained of. And that's the patient complaining of something. Yes. And what is the patient complaining of? Complained of right shoulder pain. Okay. And earlier in the day, she had been complaining of pain in her right arm when she got the Demerol. You knew that, I guess, when you took over. When I took over from from Mrs. Campbell. Well, I don't remember right now. Well, when you took over for Mrs. Campbell, did you review the focus notes? I remember glancing over them, yes, but you don't remember any specifics of that at this time. I would have to look. Okay, of your own memory right now? My own memory right now, I don't remember. You don't remember that? No, okay. Now you, when is the first time that you ever saw these pictures of Mrs. Routier in the hospital and afterwards. Which pictures exactly? I think Mr. Shook showed you some of, I'm not sure how many he showed you, of these 52-A and B. I saw them Tuesday. Had you ever seen them before that? No, sir. Where were you when you saw them? We met in the hotel conference room. How did you happen to meet? What do you mean exactly how? Why did you go to that room? Because we were called to meet them. Who called you? Who told you to go? From what I remember, there was just a message at the hotel to meet in room so-and-so at noon. 
you're not real clear about how I don't remember exactly who left the message, but there was a message at the hotel for me. And where did you go to meet? We met in their little conference room off one of the hotel rooms. And who was present at that meeting? Me and the other nurses. Who? Give me their names. Tell me everybody whose name that you can remember in there. Mr. Shock. Mr. Basillo was there, Paige Campbell, Diane Holland, Jody Cotner, Phyllis, and I don't know her last name, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Phyllis, where does Phyllis work? Phyllis is one of the Baylor police. Okay, so Phyllis, and did Phyllis, well, did y'all get the pictures out and put them on a table? Yes, sir. Who told you what the purpose of the meeting was when you got there? I don't remember. You don't remember who did that? I don't remember. Okay. Did y'all lay out pictures on the table? Yes, sir. Everybody talked about them. We looked at them and discussed what we saw. Discussed what you observed? Yes, sir. And did you point out what you observed? I was just really kind of quiet and just sat, kind of sat back. I saw them, but I didn't, wasn't very verbal. Did other people point out what they observed? Yes, sir. Was this a square table or a round table? I don't remember. You don't remember the shape of the table? No. Now, did Phyllis Jackson, the Baylor security guard, did she also look at the pictures? Yes, sir. When she came down here the other day, she was in her uniform. Was she in her uniform then? Well, I really don't remember. I don't think so. You don't think she was in her uniform? I don't remember. I guess you have known Phyllis Jackson for a while because of working at Baylor. No, actually, I just met her this week. Okay, and, but that is all you can remember being there at that meeting? Mm-hmm. Just looked at the pictures. You don't remember Dr. Dillon being there, do you? Yes, sir, he was there. Oh, you do? Yes. You forgot that a minute ago? Yes, now that you said that. Okay. Mr. Mosty then says, I will pass the witness. At this point, Mr. Toby Shook gets up to do his redirect. When Mrs. Routier told you this story in the hospital, you didn't cross-examine her or question her or anything like that, did you? As to its truth or veracity, did you? No, the only question that I asked her was how she knew it was her knife. Okay, did I, at any of our meetings that we have had and gone over your testimony and questions I've asked you, did I ever try to get you to lie or shade your testimony in any way? Mr. Mulder says, object to leading. The court says, overruled, go ahead. Mr. Mulder then says, he's bolstering the witness. The court says, thank you, Mr. Mulder, ask your question. Mr. Toby Shook then says, have I ever tried to get you to do anything like that, Mrs. Falk? No, sir. Okay. Mr. Toby Shook then says, that's all the questions I have, Judge. Mr. Mosty says, nothing further. Court says, you may step down. And the next witness to testify will be Thomas Ward, a sergeant and peace officer who searched the area around the Routier home on the morning of June the 6th. 
The direct examination is done by Mr. Greg Davis of the prosecution. Sir, will you please tell us your full name? My full name is Thomas Dean Ward, W-A-R-D. Mr. Ward, how are you employed? As a peace officer with the city of Rowlett. How long have you been a Rowlett police officer? 10 years, January the 8th of this year. Are you a sergeant with the department? Yes, sir, I am. How long have you been a sergeant out there? Eight and a half years. All right. Now, you have been with Rowlett for 10 years. Before going to Rowlett, were you a peace officer somewhere else in Dallas County? Yes, sir, I was. What department did you serve at that time? Mesquite Police Department. How long were you a Mesquite police officer? 14 years and eight months. So you've been a police officer now going on 25 years. Is that right? April 17th of this year is my 25th year. Okay, just a few things first. Sergeant Ward, when did you get to Kerrville this week? A Sunday. Are you staying at the YO with the rest of us? Yes, sir. Prior to coming to Kerrville, Sergeant, did I have an opportunity to talk to you about this case? Yes, sir. How many times have I talked to you about your testimony prior to coming to Kerrville? Prior to coming to Kerrville, twice. Do you recall where those meetings took place? Both of them were at, the first one was in your office and the other one was there in the building. Okay, my office is in the courthouse in Dallas. Is that right? Yes, sir, in the courthouse. So that was the first meeting. The second one, did we meet in the courtroom? The first one was the courtroom, but the second one was at your office. All right. And when we went to the courtroom, were other Rowlett police officers present? Yes, sir. And at that time, did we discuss the testimony that would be presented in this case? We did. Are there some Rowlett police officers who have never testified in a court before? Yes, sir. So we've met twice in Dallas. Have we met to discuss your testimony since you've come to Kerrville? Briefly. All right. And when did that meeting take place? This morning. We were back in the workroom, I guess, back in the old jail is where we have got the office, right? That's correct. And did we meet back there sometime after eight o'clock this morning? Yes, sir. Have I asked you to look at certain photographs that will be offered as exhibits in this case? You have. Have I asked you to look at other items that may be offered? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, if we can, let's go back to June the 6th of 1996, Sergeant Ward. Let me ask you whether or not at three o'clock in the morning, were you on duty or were you at home? No, sir. I was at home in bed. All right. Were you sleeping? Yes, sir. And did you receive a phone call? Yes, sir. And was it concerning this case? Yes, sir. And were you asked to do certain things in connection with this case? Yes, sir. I was instructed to report for duty. All right. Did you, in fact, get up and go to the police station there in Rowlett? Yes, sir. I did. And do you recall about what time that you got to the police station that morning? It was shortly before four o'clock. 
I would say somewhere around 15 till, 10 till, something like that, 345, 350. All right. What was the purpose of you going to the police station that morning? I had to pick up a squad car, a marked car. And when I got there, I was also asked to pick up other equipment. The officers on the scene, their flashlights were running out and they wanted new flashlights. And I had some equipment to round up. About how long did it take you once you got up there to round up all the stuff that you needed to round up? Not long, probably within 10 minutes I was en route. Okay, en route to where? To Eagle Drive. All right, would that be 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. Let me ask you, when you got there, did you meet with someone from the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, sir. My supervisor, Lieutenant Grant Jack, met me in the front yard. All right. And did you give somebody the supplies that you had brought up there to the location? Yes. Okay. After you did that, were you given any instructions on what the folks up there at the scene wanted you to do out there? Yes, sir. My lieutenant instructed me to supervise the outside perimeter. Okay, just what does that mean, supervise the outside perimeter? This was something like two hours after the crime had been reported. And to supervise the perimeter, that was my instructions. And from that, what I did was I placed an officer at each end of the alley simply to stop people that would be going to work, the residents that would be going to work. We wanted to find out if they had seen anything. And then also I was to make a sweep of the neighborhood. Okay. Do you know an officer, David Waddell? Yes, sir, I do. Was he one of the officers that you assigned to the alley? Yes, sir, the North Alley. And do you remember, just by chance, do you remember the other officer that was assigned to the other end of the alley? Yes, sir, it was Dale Stevens who was assigned to the south end of the alley. Okay, so you had the alley covered, correct? That's correct. Anyone else that you gave instructions to concerning the outside perimeter? Yes, sir. There was another officer at the scene. His name was Steve Ferry, and I had instructed Steve to go with me while we looked through the neighborhood. All right. Now, do you recall at some point while you were going through this neighborhood, do you recall you and Officer Ferry actually going down the alley that's behind 5801 Eagle Drive. Yes, sir. About what time that morning would you and Officer Ferry have been going down that alley? Approximately 4.30, a little after. And do you recall how you started? Let me just ask you, is 5801 on one end of the alley? Yes, sir. All right. Did you start on the end of the alley closest to 5801 or did you start from the opposite end of the alley? Directly behind 5801. And what direction would you have been going then? South. Is it just you and Officer Ferry? Yes, sir. Is it still dark outside? Yes, sir, it is. Were y'all using your flashlights at that point? Yes, sir. Just tell us what you and Officer Ferry began doing as you go down that alley. What are y'all looking for? By this time, it's two hours after the offense, 
and we're not really expecting to find our suspect, what we're looking for is evidence and evidence that would be left by the suspect when he fled. It might have been his hat. Maybe it blew off his head. Maybe he dropped something. Maybe he was bleeding. Maybe he left a track. Just anything that would lead us back to that crime scene. Did you see any blood in the alley that you would interpret to be the start of a trail? No, sir. Did you see any blood at all at the beginning of that alley, sir? No, I did not. And that would have been right behind 5801 Eagle Drive. Is that right? That's correct. Just if you would, describe for us then what you did back in that alley to look for evidence. You look in every backyard. If you can't see in the backyard, you get to where you can. There's a lot of wooden stockade fences. You check the ground for blood. You look in the shrubs. You look in the gutters. You look in the storm drains. You open every trash can. You open every container. You look in the boats. You look under cars. You search that alley. Okay, were the garbage, were there garbage containers back there in the alley? Yes, sir. Are they cans or are they rubber containers? What sort of containers does Rowlett use for the trash collection? They're large rubber containers with a lid on them. All right. And did you start looking inside each of those containers? I did. Were there boats nearby the alley close to 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. Did you look in those boats for evidence? Yes, sir. Did you find any evidence in the boats? No, sir. The backyards that you started to look at as you went south, did you actually then look over the fence to determine whether or not you could see evidence there? We did. Did you find any evidence or anything that you thought might be connected with this offense? We did not. And as you continued down the alley, sir, did you find any blood on the pavement of the alley? No, sir, we did not. Now, at some point, Sergeant Ward, did you come to the portion of the alley that's behind 5709 Eagle Drive? Uh, yes, sir, we did. How many houses down from 5801 Eagle Drive would 5709 Eagle Drive be? I believe it's the third house. Okay. And as you came to that particular location, let me ask you, had you found any evidence prior to getting to that location? No, sir, none at all. Any hats, any clothing, any weapons, anything at all that you would believe to be connected to this offense? None. Had you checked all the garbage containers and all of the backyards and any vehicles that you could check back there in the alley prior to getting there? Yes, sir, we had. Okay, now when you got to 5709 Eagle Drive, did you notice anything unusual at that point? Yes, this is rear entry houses and the alleyway in the drive to 5709 are right there and the trash was out and beside the container was a white athletic tube sock type of sock, white sock. Okay, and were there any lights on back there in the alley to help you find that item? No, sir. Okay, were you using your flashlight still? Yes, sir. Officer Ferry still got his flashlight? Yes. 
Okay, so you actually saw it as you were scanning the ground there. That's correct. Okay. Sergeant Ward, if you would please look at States Exhibit 20, 20-A and 20-B. Yes, sir. Are these three photographs, first of all, States Exhibit 20, is this a true and accurate depiction, an aerial shot of the portion of Eagle Drive in the alleyway that you have just been testifying about? That is correct, sir. States Exhibit 20-A and 20-B, do they truly and accurately depict the white sock that you found, as well as the garbage container there in the alleyway as they appeared on June 6, 1996? Yes, sir. Okay. And these photographs here, I've shown these to you prior to you testifying this morning. Is that right? You have, sir. All right. At this point, Mr. Greg Davis says, Your Honor, may the witness please step down for a moment. The court says he may. Please step down. Watch your step. He is then instructed to walk over by the witness stand and the jury rail, at which point Mr. Davis continues. All right, Sergeant. If you'll step back here to my side here, again, if we could just stand back so that all of the jurors can see what we're talking about here. Again, this, the top photograph, this is, okay, looking at States Exhibit 20 again, this is an aerial photograph of a portion of Eagle Drive and the alley behind Eagle Drive. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And we have labeled 5801, with the red designation of 5801 right here. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And Eagle Drive runs to the front of the house and then it bends around to the side. Is that right? That's correct. All right. The Can you just point out, the court then says, the jury can't, can you see? The people down there may not be able to. Mr. Greg Davison says, again, if you'll stand back just a little bit, sir, right down there. All right. Now, if you would just point out for the members of the jury where that alley is back there. The alley we're speaking of, this is 5801 and the alley is a rear entry alley and it runs right here. All right. And where on this alley did you start your search that morning? We began to search the actual search right here at the door. We came out, checked the alley and then turned and went south. All right. And I understand then that whatever containers, boats, vehicles, backyards that you would have searched, you would have been then from the beginning of this alley to 5709 down there. Is that right? And beyond. All right. Now, when you got down to 5709 Eagle Drive, does States Exhibit 20-A, does that show the trash container as well as a white object next to it that turned out to be a tube sock? Yes, it does. And States Exhibit 20-B, is that a closer photograph of that tube sock as it laid on the ground next to the trash container? Yes, sir. A white tube sock, correct? That's correct. Okay. Could you determine whether or not there was any or appeared to be any blood on that sock? This stain here appeared to be blood. Okay. And you're pointing at this red area here. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, Sergeant. Was that the only blood that you could see on that sock? That's it. 
Could you tell the members of the jury about how big this red spot was on this sock? Maybe half the size of my thumb from the first joint. I And I don't even know if it was that big. It was a small one, an inch by half an inch, three quarters of an inch. Okay, let me just about the size of a dime, a quarter, an elongated nickel, probably. Okay, fair enough. Go ahead and have a seat back up there. When you had an opportunity to look at the sock, did it appear that this sock was a new sock? It didn't appear to be a brand new sock. It appeared to be one that was in good condition. Okay. And when you actually saw it, did you look in the on the ground surrounding the sock? Did you see whether or not you could find any blood in that area? Yes, sir, we did. On the ground? Yes. Did you see any blood on the grass where this sock was actually found? No, I did not. Okay. Did you look at the garbage container that was right next to the sock? Yes, sir, I did. Could you see any blood on the trash container there? No, sir. Did you look inside the garbage container? Yes, sir, I did. What was inside that morning? The grass clippings. Okay. Was the garbage container empty, just a few grass clippings on the bottom, or did it appear that it was waiting to be picked up? Half to two-thirds full. Half to two-thirds full? Yes, sir. Had you found trash in the other containers? Yes, sir. All right. It appeared that they were ready to be picked up that morning? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you see any blood inside the trash container? And no, sir, I did not. Did you find anything else inside the trash container beside the grass clippings? Just grass clippings. Didn't find another sock in there? No, sir. Didn't find any shoes inside the garbage container? No, sir. How about just in the area surrounding the garbage container? Did you find any other socks? No, sir, I did not. How about shoes? No, sir. Just this one sock. That is correct. Now, if I may, let me just step back so that you and the jury can see what I'm going to point at here. Does there appear to be a storm sewer drain here right next to the garbage container? Yes, sir, there is. Okay, is there a manhole cover right there? Yes, sir. Right next to it? Yes, sir. Okay, now let me ask you, Sergeant Ward, did you ever have an opportunity to look inside that storm sewer? Yes, sir. We didn't have a key to it at the time, but I laid down and shined my flashlight down looking at the base, and then it, it kind of runs off at a funny angle, it doesn't run true with the alley. The drain doesn't. And I looked down the drain as far as I could. Okay. When you looked inside the drain, did you see any blood? No, sir. Did you see any other socks? No, sir. Did you see any shoes? No, sir. Did you see anything inside that drain when you looked in it that morning? No, sir, I did not. The sock that you located by the garbage container did you take possession of that at the time? I did not take possession of it. I stood guard over it. All right. Do you have an officer by the name of David Maine with the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, sir. Is he in the physical evidence section? Yes, sir. Did Officer Maine come to that scene and actually take possession of the sock? 
That is correct. Did you stop your search of the alley after you had found that sock? No, sir, we did not. Okay. How far down the alley did you go? All the way to the end. All right. Did you continue searching garbage containers? Yes, sir. Did you continue searching vehicles or boats? Yes, sir, we did. Did you continue searching the alley itself? We did. Backyards also? Yes, sir. What else did you find in your search of that alley? On this particular search? Yes, sir. Nothing. Now, let me just ask you, besides the elongated nickel-sized blood spot on this sock, Sergeant Ward, did you ever see any other blood in that alley all the way from the start to the finish of your search, sir? No, sir, we did not. Do you know about how long it took you to search that alley? Probably till about 5.15. Okay, 5.20, something like that. So you started about what time? Shortly before 4.30, 4.25 maybe, something like that. And you went on to what time? It was almost an hour. I think we probably finished up 50, 55 minutes later. All right. And was Officer Ferry with you the entire way? Within sight of me, yes. Basically helping you search. Well, yes, sir. We kind of split it up. He took one side and I took the other. All right. Now, after you finished your search of the alley, Sergeant, what did you do at that point? We began canvassing the neighborhood and waking people up. And when you are talking about canvassing the neighborhood, what's the purpose of canvassing the neighborhood? To just see if anybody throughout the night had seen or heard anything suspicious, if there was any unusual activity, had there been any strange people in the neighborhood, that sort of thing. Do you remember which houses that you went to personally to canvas? I don't remember all of them, sir. I probably went somewhere around 12 to 15 houses. Okay, and in relation to 5801 Eagle Drive, do you remember where some of these houses would have been? Yes, sir, I do. Now, the ones immediately south of and behind the house, I personally made contact with those folks. Okay, let me just show you. And again, Mr. Greg Davis asks if the witness could step down. And at that point, he does. Again, Sergeant, if you'll just stand back here so that all of the jurors uh, can see here. You said that you started canvassing the houses behind and to the south of 5801. Is that right? Yes, sir. What area of this photograph, which is States Exhibit Number 7, where would we see those houses? This is 5801, and I made contact with these houses through here. So you have shown us the three houses that, let's see, it would be to the south on Eagle. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then you have shown us the first five houses on Willowbrook Drive, beginning Eagle and then going south. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, now, when you say canvas, did you actually talk to the occupants of these houses? Yes, sir, we did. We woke them up. Okay, what kind of questions were you asking these people? Did you see anything through the night? Did you hear anything through the night? 
Has there been any unusual activity? Have strangers been in the neighborhood? Is there anything that you would be able to tell us that would help us with this? Okay. I just want to ask of the, I guess, the eight houses that you went to right here. Did you get any information that would help? No. All right. You did these eight houses here. Yes. Did you ever canvas any other houses in the neighborhood, Sergeant? Right here where Linda Vista comes in. I talked to all of those people, these people that were immediately next to them about five houses here and over here, but there were other officers that were canvassing the neighborhood also. And we went to where Linda Vista came in, these houses around here. Okay, let me just ask you, you personally, let's just deal with people that you dealt with personally, okay? Of all the houses and all the occupants that you talked to out there, did you personally ever get any information concerning what might have happened out there that night? No, sir, I did not. Okay, Sergeant, you can go back up there, uh, whereupon he went back onto the witness stand and the questioning continued. Uh, Sergeant, let me ask you if later that morning, still on June the 6th, later that morning, if you ever had another occasion of going to the alley behind 5801 Eagle Drive. Yes, sir. We wanted to redo the search. And the reason being in the middle of the night, you're operating by flashlight and you miss stuff. So as soon as good daylight came, we went back through the alley and repeated the procedure. Okay, now it's daylight. Did you do the exact same thing that you had done between 425 and 520? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you go back and look at the garbage containers again? Yes, sir. Did you look at the boats again? Yes, sir. Did you look at the vehicles again? Yes, sir. Did you look in the backyards again? Yes, sir. Did you look in the alleyway itself, the paved portion and the grass that surrounds the alley? Yes, sir. Let me ask you, did you ever find any other blood in that alley in either the paved portion or the grass that's right next to that paved part of the alley? No, sir, we did not. Did you ever find any other item either in the alley, in that alley, garbage containers, in backyards, in vehicles, boats, or any other item that had blood on them? No, sir. Did you find any other item of clothing during that search? No, sir. Specifically, did you find any sock that might be a match or mate to the sock that you found there at 5709 Eagle? No, sir, we did not. Find any socks? No, sir. How about shoes? Did you ever find any shoes back there during your search? No, sir. Let me ask you, at some point in your search of that alley, Sergeant Ward, did you again come to the part of the alley that's there at 5709 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. All right. And the next street over would be Willowbrook, correct? That is correct. All right. Did you have occasion to look into the backyard that would have been across the alley from 5709 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. And when you looked over there, could you see any knives in the backyard? Yes, sir. Okay, describe for the jury exactly what you saw 
when you looked over into this backyard. The backyard had a hedge that kind of ran around the back of it. There was some rubber edging or molding that people use to outline their flower beds. It's like maybe four or five inches wide. It comes in a roll and you unroll it. It's plastic. You put part of it in the ground, you bury part of it, and then right at the end, there was a string that was on the ground, a screwdriver, a yellow handled screwdriver, a metallic knife that was laying on the ground between the screwdriver and the other knife. The other knife was a kitchen butcher knife and it was sticking in the ground. Okay, now the, as I understood it, there are hedges back there. Yes, sir. And this rubber edging for flower beds, is it back there also? Yes, sir. Okay, as a matter of fact, part of that had been buried. And when you got to where the knives were, it came up out of the ground and it was just a loose end that hadn't been worked with yet. It was laying there by the knives. Okay, was there also a string back there? Yes, sir. How close to the edging was the string? It's kind of parallel. The string was more to the center side of the yard lawn and it was loose. It wasn't packed or anything. Have you ever heard of using a string line to line something up? Yes, sir, I have. All right. How about the knives that you saw? Were they just laying loose in the backyard when you could see them or how are they located back there? Well, the metallic knife that was solid metallic was laying on the ground and the butcher kitchen butcher knife was sticking in the ground, about half of the blade buried in the ground. All right, how close to the string and to the rubber material were the knives? Right adjacent to them, I mean, a couple of feet. All right, you say that one of them was laying down and the other one was actually stuck in the ground? That's correct. When you looked at them, the light was good at that time, right? Yes, sir. Could you see any blood on either one of those two knives, sir? No, either on the handle or on the blade portion of those two knives? No, sir. Sergeant Ward, if you would, look at States Exhibit 21, States Exhibit 22. Have I shown you these two knives before your testimony this morning? Yes, sir, you have, okay. Have I asked you to look at them and tell me whether or not they look like the two knives that you saw in the backyard that morning? Yes, sir, you have. All right. And just tell the members of the jury whether or not those two knives look like the two knives that you saw that morning. Yes, sir. Okay. At which point, Mr. Greg Davis says, Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer States Exhibit 21 and 22, Mr. Mulder says no objection. Uh, the court then says they're admitted. Mr. Mulder then asks, which is which? Uh, Mr. Davis responds with 21 is going to be all steel. 22 has the wooden handle. He then continues his questioning of Sergeant Ward. Uh, Sergeant Ward, the which one of these knives was actually stuck into the ground? This one, all right. And they appeared to me on the morning of June, the, the court then interrupts and said, let the record reflect that the witness is referring to States Exhibit 22. Mr. Davis says, right. 
As they appeared to me on the morning of the 6th, the screwdriver would have been on the right-hand side and it was sticking in the ground. It was a yellow-handled screwdriver and this knife was laying with the blade away from me like that. And this knife was stuck in the ground here with about that much of the blade in the ground. The court then says, okay, the first knife you referred to was... The witness then responds with 21. Mr. Greg Davis says 21 was the knife where the blade edge was pointing away from you, correct? That is correct. And you're holding state's exhibit number 22. And you're indicating to us, if you would, approximately how many inches of the blade was into the ground itself? Three and a half to four inches. All right. Now, the handle of the screwdriver, could you see it? Yes, sir. Was there anything on that handle that you could see? It appeared as though they had, somebody had been using it with muddy hands. Okay. Why? Why did it look that way? Well, when you, when they were installing this, it looked as though that they had used these items or these utensils to install that rubber edging for digging, for cutting it, that sort of thing. The screwdriver was sticking in the ground and there was mud on the handle. Okay. There was mud on all of these items. Okay. Did it appear to be fresh mud or dried blood? I mean, dried mud. I want to insert something here. The comment about dried blood or dried mud um, was actually not my mistake. It's actually within the transcript itself. So let me continue. The answer was it was fresh. So let me just ask you, let's talk about state's exhibit number 21, okay? You had a chance to look at both the handle and the knife blade, correct? Uh-huh. Could you see anything on this knife, number 21? No, sir, I could not. Okay, all right. No blood? No, all right. Any mud that you could determine that you could see on that? Yes, sir, there was mud. All right. What portion of state's exhibit number 21 could you see mud on? There was mud all over the knife. I mean, it had been used by somebody in the mud. It was muddy. Okay. Again, was it fresh or did it appear to be dried mud? It appeared to be fresh. It was still moist looking. All right. Is it on the handle up here? Yes, sir. As well as on the blade? Yes, sir. Now we're looking at state's exhibit number 22. Of course, part of the blade is actually into the ground. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, all right. Let's talk about first, then the handle portion of state's exhibit number 22. Could you see anything on that? Mud, all right, mud again? Yes, sir. Okay, covering what portion of the handle? Almost entirely all of the handle. Okay, how about the portion of the blade that you could actually see sticking out of the ground? Was there anything on that? The portion, that portion had some mud on it, but that was the cleanest part of the knife was that portion. Some mud, but not as much as on the handle. Is that right? That's correct. All right. Also on those knives, when you looked at this knife, you could see where somebody had gripped it, where they had been digging and where their hand left the imprint of their hand on the handle, where they had been digging with it and that sort of thing. You could actually see where somebody had been using it in the mud. Okay. 
a hand imprint in the mud. Is that right? Yes, sir. Where you could see the fingers, where the fingers were on the handle. All right, Sergeant Ward, when you saw the screwdriver and you saw these two knives, did you retrieve them at that time? No, sir, I did not. Okay, would you just tell members of the jury why you decided not to retrieve them at that time? It was my opinion that they weren't connected with the offense. Had there been any doubt in my mind that either of these knives, the screwdriver, the string, or the edging had been connected with this offense, we would have retrieved it. There was no question in my mind, then or now, that they were not connected. Okay, let me just ask you, if you would just tell us, tell us the factors that went into your decision and why you believed that these two knives and the screwdriver were not connected to the offense. At the time that I found these, I was accompanied by the lead investigator, J.R. Patterson. We had been, or Patterson had told Mr. Mosty, then says, objection, that's hearsay, clearly. The court then says, just state what you actually know yourself. Rephrase the question. Mr. Greg Davis then continues. Let me just ask you, at the time that you saw these two knives, did you know whether or not a knife with blood on it had been retrieved from inside the residence at 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir, I did. So you knew that? Yes, sir. Okay. And then if you would, again, what were your personal observations about these two knives that led you to believe that they were not connected to the offense and that you would not retrieve them at that time? There was no blood at all. That was the primary. Uh, secondly, these knives, the way they were arranged with the items that they were found with, it was obvious that they had been used in planting that edging around the flower bed. And whoever had not finished the job and they just left their utensils there. The edging, part of it was buried. And as you got closer to the alley and it turned and went south, it came up out of the ground and it was still laying loose. It was kind of in a curl. Looking at it, whoever was installing that edging just left the utensils that they were using there. Also, there was a six foot locked fence that surrounded these items. The back gate was locked. The fence is an iron fence that's got bars about every six inches. You can see through it. It's easily seen through, but you can't hardly get, you know, it's hard to climb. You can't hardly get over it. So the fence is six feet tall, right? Yes, sir. Have you seen those fences? The fences, sometimes they'll put around apartment complexes, a kind of security fence where they've got the vertical slats, the metal slats. Yes, sir. Very similar. Is that very similar to the kind of fence behind this yard? Yes, sir. And did you actually, you yourself, uh, did you go and check the gate of that yard to make sure that it was locked? Yes, sir, I did. And it was locked, correct? Yes, sir, it was. Okay. Another thing that Mr. Mosty then pipes up and says, excuse me, your honor, I don't believe a question was asked of this witness. The court then says, well, I'll let him answer it. Go ahead. Mr. Mosty says, answer a question that hadn't been asked. And the court then says, well, I think we can clear it up, Mr. Mosty. And Mr. Davis then says, were there any factors that led you not to collect those two knives, sir? Yes, sir. 
The when you find something that is suspicious, it has to be taken into consideration of everything that was found there. Everything. If you find a knife in one place, it is and another place that it isn't. I was absolutely positive that those things had not been used. Okay, has your opinion changed? None. And again, do I understand you to say that even after you saw these two knives, that you continued the entire length of that alley again, searching in daylight? Yes, sir, we did. No other items retrieved or seen. Is that right? None. Let me ask you, do you recall how long that you stayed out there at the residence that day before you left? About 7 p.m., I think. All right. Just in general, your duties after you went down to down the alley with Detective Patterson, what types of things are you doing? Are you part of the crime scene team out there? Uh, no, sir. Generally, what I did was I facilitated the outside perimeter. I made sure that the guys that were maintaining the perimeter had bathroom breaks. They had sufficient water. If somebody on the inside of the house needed something, I made sure that they got it, that sort of thing. So you're basically, you're a supervisor from that point on. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, Sergeant. Sergeant Ward, let me show you what I've marked, had marked for identification purposes as States Exhibit 20-C. Do you recognize that, sir, to be a report that you prepared in this case? This is my rough draft report that I prepared, yes. All right. And let me just ask you, you say this is a rough, rough notes of what happened, correct? Yes, sir. In all fairness, did you also prepare a handwritten report about what happened? Yes, sir, I did. All right. And have we looked for that? And has your lead detective looked for that? And can we not find that? And the secretary back home has looked for that and we can't find it. Okay, well, let me just ask you, you know, Mr. Mulder has got a copy of 20-C, but let me just ask you, did you use 20-C to prepare your handwritten report? Yes, sir, I did. So this is, would it be fair to say that this is the basis of the report that today we cannot find? Is that right? Yes, sir. All right. Do you know of any other additional information in that written report, the handwritten report that's not in 20-C? Yes, sir. I did that at the end of June the 6th, probably around 8 p.m. Okay. And it starts off, you'll notice that the date is blank, right? I couldn't think of it and I just skipped over it. And on my handwritten copy, I went back and I put the date in. Okay, you actually put the 6th of June. Yes, instead of just leaving it, the actual date blank, right? I went back in and filled in the date. Okay, and then at the bottom of that paragraph, it says that the sock was recovered by Officer Bledingfield, but it was recovered by Officer Maine, and I'm aware of that. Okay, so in this one, you didn't actually put the sixth, you just left the date blank and you put in that the sock was taken by Bettingfield instead of taken by David Maine, actually. Correct? That's correct. All right, Your Honor, at this time we'll pass the witness. The court then says Mr. Mosty and Mr. Richard uh, Mosty begins his cross-examination. 
Sergeant Ward, how long did you say you've been an officer? Uh, 24 years and eight months. And with Rowlett, how long? 10 years. And you were a supervisor of what? Patrol. And how many people are under your... It varies from what shift you're on, as many as 10 and as few as six. Okay. Are you in charge of all the patrol officers? No, sir, just my shift. You have a shift that you're in charge of. That's correct. All right. And you have been trained, I guess, in collection of evidence and preservation of crime scenes. Yes, sir. And those types of things. Yes. And you understand the importance of collecting all of the evidence that might be of any, even questionable assistance to the case. Yes, sir. I sure do. Isn't that the rule that, you know, let's collect it all and figure out what's important later? Yes, sir. And do you instruct your patrol officers in the same manner? Yes, sir, I do. But I know they're not investigators full-time, but oftentimes they might be the first person on the scene. That is correct. So they're trained to preserve and observe crime scenes. That's correct. Now, did you take notes that night? Yes, sir. In your whip-out book? Not a whip-out book. I carried a big notebook. A big notebook? Yes. And where are those notes? Locked up in my file cabinet, I believe. Okay. And when did you lock them up in the file cabinet? When I finished that report. Finished what report? The typewritten one or the missing? No, the handwritten. Okay. So probably since maybe June the 10th. Okay. The missing report is the handwritten one. Yes, sir. And that's about June 10th. I did the handwritten report the next day. All right. When I did that one that's in front of you there, it was June 6th. I got up somewhere around 310 or 315 in the morning, somewhere around eight o'clock when I wrote that one. When I got through with that one, I was done. I went home. And I did that while it was still fresh in my mind. Okay, so you got some notes that are in the file cabinet from the notes you did a written report. Am I right? Yes, from my handwritten notes, I did a report. Okay, and that handwritten, the missing report was done on the 7th? That's correct. Okay, and when did it turn up missing? Today. 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 When did you first go looking for it? Today. You looked for your notes? Today. Today. Uh-huh. You couldn't find the notes? I had a copy of the thing right here in front of you that I reviewed. That's it? That's it. That's all the review I've had. A matter of fact, the copy that I'm looking at, well, you made a handwritten report. Is it a full report? I mean... The handwritten report on the such and such day, such and such I did, and it describes everything you did. Everything of importance, yes. And I assume that you never have looked for that until today. That's correct. There are two things in my notes. Well, let's talk about the handwritten notes for a minute, okay? You had not ever reviewed that from June the 7th? 
I have never reviewed the handwritten notes. Okay. And when you did those hands, that handwritten report, what did you do with it? Turned it in. Two, when we turn in a report, you stick it in a file. There's a file cabinet there for reports that are going in. You put it in there and then it's dispersed throughout the department wherever it needs to go. Is it like an in-basket? Yes, an in-basket, out-basket for daily reports. Yes, sir. And then you say it's distributed within the department. Yes, sir. And, but if there's an investigating officer, a copy of your report will go to the lead detective, for instance. Yes, sir. A copy will go to the district attorney. Yes, sir. It will go to the case file. Okay, so anything that you have noted, whether it's important or it excludes something or whatever it is, those copies are distributed around so that the important, so that the people in charge will know what's happening. Things that are important, not necessarily due to exclude something, but things that are important, yes. Okay. And then if I understand, you typed a report after the handwritten report? Uh, No, no. I took the handwritten notes. Okay. And the handwritten notes are just like anybody else's handwritten notes. They're enough to jog your memory. Okay. They're not in detail. Okay. From that, the evening of the 6th, I prepared that report that's in front of you. Okay. So you got your notes and they're just hieroglyphics or scribbling or whatever it is to remind yourself. They're notes to remind yourself. They're not hieroglyphics. Okay. And if you read my writing, you might call it hieroglyphics. Okay. And then you wrote, would you call it a narrative report? The report that I submitted is just almost verbatim of that report that's in front of you. Well, I understand, but let's talk about on June 6th. June the 6th. When you're sitting there, and I guess you've got your notes beside you or referring to them when you need to? Yes. And your handwriting out. No. No. No, I'm typing. Okay. I took the handwritten notes, I typed them, and then I hand wrote them again. Okay, you took, typing is in the middle. Typing is in the middle? Yes, sir. And then after you had typed up this report and you sat down with this report and got you a pad of paper and commenced to handwriting out this report. Yes, sir, I did. But when you did that, did you put the two of them together? I mean, did you take them and take them to the inbox and did you throw them together in the inbox? No. Well, what did you do with them? I saved one on the computer and turned the other one in. Okay, so even the one on the computers lost? No. The hard copy? The copy that you've got this morning, we called back to the department and the secretary went in and pulled it off of my hard drive and faxed it to us. Okay. And as a matter of fact, she faxed it down here at 9.44 a.m. this morning. I didn't check the time, but that's close. All right. What time did you start testifying? Right after that. When you started testifying, had this report even come in? Yes, sir. 
the court then interrupts and said, let the record reflect that this witness is started testifying at 9.54 a.m. Mr. Mosty then says, okay. The witness, obviously the sergeant, uh, says, counselor, we didn't know this thing was missing until this morning, or believe me, I would have had it. Mr. Mosty then says, so you've never had an opportunity to look for it? Uh, no, sir. Okay, but now this one, so the hard copy, did you sign the one that you typed up? No, sir. You don't sign those? It's on my computer. Okay, but that's my rough copy of my notes. That's not the one I turned in. You got a handwritten report that's more complete than this one or not? It's almost verbatim with what that one was, except you made some mistakes, you know, on that one. On this one here? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, tell me what mistakes you remember making. On the date, which was June the 6th, I left that date out. You couldn't remember the date. It had been a long day, sir. All right. And on the bottom one where Officer Bain took the sock, I believe I put Officer Beddingfield. Okay. Was that in your notes? No. Your scribble notes? No. That came out of my head. Okay. That was from the halls of your memory. That's right. Okay. But then, right then, within 12 hours, you couldn't remember. You made a mistake about who picked up the sock, correct? On the rough notes, yes. Right, you misdescribed the officer who picked up the sock. Misnamed him. Misnamed him? Yes. Misdescribed him? Misnamed him. Made an error? Made an error. Was not accurate in your description. In the name, correct. So what you wrote down was not accurate, was it? Mr. Greg Davison says, I'll object. It's repetitious. I think that's about the fifth time on that, Your Honor. The court then says, sustained. I think he has answered the question. Let's go on to the next one. Mr. Mosty then continues. And then later on, you thought a little bit more about it and corrected it. Well, the next time I read that, I corrected it. Yes. Okay. You didn't even until, well, when did you read it? The next day when I hand wrote it. Okay. You hand wrote the next day. Even when you were typing it from your notes, you didn't detect your error? No, it wasn't until you read it again the next day. That's correct. And hand wrote it. That's correct. Why did you hand write what had already been typed up? Because it was a hard copy and it was going on a form and that form is not on our computer. We have a supplement form and I put it on the supplement. And why do you do supplements? To add things that you have forgotten to put in? No, sir. You add information to the offense reports or investigations. Okay. Sometimes to correct a misstatement or something you neglected to put in an earlier report. It could be. Yes, sir. That is one of the many uses. Okay. When did you come to Kerrville? A Sunday. When you packed up to come, you didn't think, let me get my file. I ought to bring my report. I know I'm going to testify. I need to have my report. Sir, what I brought with me is that little note that you've got right there in front of you. That's all I brought. This one that got faxed in today at 944. That's right. 
well, you didn't bring that with you Monday, did you? No, it was in my suitcase in my room. I can tell you exactly where it's at. Oh, you left one out in your suitcase. A copy of that, yes. And when you came down this morning, you didn't have it. That's correct. Is it your practice to take your reports to court or not? No, I don't take them. Not. Are you instructed not to? No, I'm not instructed to do it, though. That's just your habit. Not to? That's correct. Now, you described in some detail how meticulous you were in this search. That's correct. And that's so that you can accurately describe, accurately observe, and later accurately describe what you saw. That's correct. And that's why you are taking notes too, isn't it? That's correct. So that you can accurately pull that when the report writing time comes, that you can pull that up and accurately describe it. Yes, sir. And that's why one might bring a report to court so that they could have that available so that they could accurately describe what they saw. That's correct. All right, now let's, I'll try to go a little bit in chronological order. If I skip around the time frame, stop me and make sure that if I jump, it's because I want to hit a few areas here with you. You, I take it, you were in charge of this alley search. Yes, sir. That began at what time? Somewhere around 420 or 425. Okay, that's just from your memory? It's from when we found the sock. Well, what time did you find the sock? Shortly after 430. Okay, but you didn't think that was important enough to note in your report. It's noted there. That is noted? Yes, sir. Okay, what time did you start? About 10 or 15 minutes before I found that sock. How long is this alley? It's a block long, one block long. How many houses? A guesstimate, it is probably 15, maybe. How many boats did you look in? I don't recall, sir, every one of them. How many? You don't remember how many there were? No. How many trash cans did you look in? Every one of them. How many were there? Every one of them. I didn't count them. I looked in every one of them. And you were, which side of the alley? You said you and, I'm sorry, Steve? Steve Ferry. Which side of the alley did you take? I took the west. You're going to have to help me here. If I'm headed, if you're down Eagle, if you walk out of the driveway at 5801 and you turn left, I had the right-hand side. Okay, the right-hand side is west and the left-hand side is east. That's correct. So y'all are going down the alley and opening trash cans, opening trash cans, dumping them out. Some of them, yes. Well, some you didn't dump out. Some didn't have much in them and we didn't have to dump them out. Did you dump them out onto the ground? Some I did, mostly there was plastic bags in them and I'd take the plastic bag out, set it on the ground, open up the bag, try not to make a mess, you know what I'm saying? And then put the stuff back in there. Dump them and leave it out? No, we didn't do that. If they were laying on the ground, we just took it, opened the bags, that kind of stuff. 
like when you've lost a Christmas present and you look and you open the trash sack and you sort of rifle through what's in there just to look and see if if there's anything that you thought might be in there. And more like you lost your paycheck and you've got to find it. Okay. And so you're opening the trash sacks and digging around to see if anything is of interest to you. That's right. And if you're even slightly in doubt that something was of interest, you're going to pick it up. That's correct. All right. So how long did it take you? You said, I think, did you tell me 45 to 55 minutes to do the whole alley? That's correct. How long were you stopped at the sock? Well, probably until almost five, five o'clock. Okay. And that was just long enough for Ferry to go back and you stayed there. Yes, sir. And he came back and then y'all went on about your business. No, we stayed there while Maine photographed the sock. Okay. You stayed there through the photography. Through about four or five shots of it. Yes. And then you went on about your business. Mm Mm-hmm. Now you don't, you say you didn't see any blood except on the sock. None at all. Well, you aren't expressing any opinion about whether or not this assailant should have been bleeding or should not have been bleeding. No, you don't have any opinion one way or the other. Well, at that time, what we knew is that we had two dead, that it was a knife type wound that caused the death and that the house was bloody on the inside. Okay, so you continued your search. And was it after that that you observed these knives? Yes, sir. And after that, how did you observe these? It's dark, I guess, with a flashlight. No, the reason we went back and redid the alley. We didn't do the alley once. We did the alley twice. And normally, immediately after an offense like this, you will do it with a flashlight. But you can be scrupulous with a flashlight and miss evidence. Well, that makes sense. So we waited until daylight and we redid it. And y'all were, the first time down, y'all were going methodically down this alley? Yes. You weren't trying to be quiet? No, sir. And after you saw the sock, then you observed these knives with your flashlight? No, did not observe them? I saw them in daylight. Okay, missed them the first time through? That's correct saw them the second time through. That's correct. Again, is this you and Ferry? A second time it was Jimmy Patterson, J.R. Patterson, lead investigator. The investigator. Yes, sir. And at this time you're on, each of you doing one side of the alley. Well, when we found those knives, we were standing side by side. Okay. And you found the knives by looking and seeing them. Yes, sir. And how far from the fence were they? Six feet. Six feet? Did you measure that? No, that's a guess. Strictly a guess. And how did you observe them? Uh, Pardon me? I don't understand. Well, from what vantage point did you observe these knives? I was in the alley and they were in the yard and it was six feet between us. You observed them from six feet? Five or six feet, something like that, yes. And Patterson observed them from five to six feet. That's correct. Nobody went over the fence. No. To get the knives. No. And you determined that from five or six feet, that there was no blood on these knives. 
that's correct. And, but you did observe that, what did you observe on the knives? Mud, mud. Okay, how much mud? There was a lot of mud. When did you see, next see, what you thought were the knives? I guess when we got down there to Kerrville, I don't remember seeing them before then. Okay. Do you know when they were collected? No, sir. They are not in the condition that you observed them, are they? No. Did you take photographs of the knives? No. Nobody did. I don't think there was photographs taken. Okay. And the knives weren't even of such interest to you that you noted them in your handwritten notes or that's correct or your report or anything. There was no question in my mind those knives were not associated with this crime. Just a non-event, a non-event. And you made that subjective determination to exclude that piece of evidence. I made that based on about 25 years of law enforcement, sir. And could you determine from the mud on the knives how those knives had been gripped? And what do you mean how they had been gripped? How someone was holding them? Didn't you tell me you saw fingerprints? And you could tell, you could see where the fingers had molded the mud and where somebody had got their hands muddy or the knife muddy and they picked the knife up and they said, and they would work with it. Now, can I tell if it was being held this way or that way or any other way? No, I couldn't tell that a hand molded that much. Okay, so there was actually mud caked on which knife? The wooden knife, the wooden handle knife, especially, yes. But on both of them, yes. And you could actually see fingerprints on both of them. You could see... Not fingerprints, but where the hand had molded to mud. Okay, now this is, let me see. We have these on exhibit 8-A. Now let's just talk about that for a minute. Were you in charge of this perimeter? What was that part of your duty as protecting this perimeter? The outside perimeter, okay. The outside perimeter. Would you say in this part where it started at the alley. I was in charge of the outside perimeter. We had officers stationed on the alley and on the other end of the alley. And, you know, I'm not really sure about what your question is, sir. Now, 20-B, how many houses are there in between the Routier house and which house? And the house where you found the sock? About three, I think, about three. And how many between where you found the sock and where you saw the knives? About the same. That's about three more down. No, it's just kind of across the alley from it. The knives are across the alley from the sock? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, are you able to describe, let's see, is this the alley here that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. And can you describe maybe two of these photographs? It looks to me like there are two houses in between on 20. Which house are you trying to find, sir? I'm trying to find the house in which you found the sock. Right there. And is the sock directly, would the house that had the knives in it be directly across from the sock? 
Well, it's the court then says, you need to get it up a little bit more, gentlemen, so the end jurors, so they can see. The witness then said, the socks here. And Mr. Mosty continues, okay, the socks in the circle, right? Mr. Mulder then says, let me hold it for you. Mr. Mosty continues, okay, the socks, uh, sock was in the circle, right? And the knives are right there. Okay, now let's go to this picture because that will, this picture here, which is seven, will also tell us where the knives were, won't it? Right in here. Okay, so the sock is behind, including the routier home. If the routier house is the first house on the block, yes, sir, right there, yes, sir. Okay, the sock was behind the fourth house. It was right here. Okay, that's behind the fourth house, isn't it? Counting the routier house, yes, sir. Counting the routier house. And the knives are directly across from the sock. That's correct. Okay. And that's actually the on the fifth house. Yes, sir. On Willowbrook. Well, yes. Okay. Now, in the, you can go ahead and have a seat. In the neighborhood canvas, what street did you do? I did parts of Eagle and Willowbrook. Okay, did it occur to you to walk into the house on Willowbrook where the knives were and ask the people about the knives? I talked to those people at about 5.45 that morning and asked them about the knives. Uh, no, sir. When we went back to contact them, there was nobody in the house. You forgot to ask them about the knives when you contacted them? Didn't know about it, sir. Oh, so you had not seen them? No, sir. And they weren't there. The people were gone by the time you had seen the knives. That's correct. Did you go back to the house? I don't know. I didn't. You didn't. No, sir. Okay. Now, can you tell me what time you think you saw these knives? Ballpark at 8.30, something like that. So you all waited a while before you went back on this second. Yes, sir. The second time. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Mr. Davis talked to you about the dress rehearsal that y'all did. The what? The dress rehearsal you did. What's a dress rehearsal? Did y'all go down to the courthouse in Dallas County? Yes, sir, we did. Who went down there? I don't know. I couldn't tell you all the officers. I know I was there. You do not recall who the other officers? No, not right off the top of my head. Okay, now that was pretty important event, wasn't it, in your mind? In my mind, it was a review of what we had done. Okay. And there were a lot of officers from Rowlett there. Yes, sir. Were there other people there? Members of the district attorney staff? Yes. Okay. Now, during this, did you call it a review? No, sir. Okay. We were told we were going to go down to discuss the case with the district attorney. Didn't you just describe it as it went down there and reviewed? I said we went down there and reviewed. And reviewed. Yes, sir. And it's during this review. Where was the review done? Dallas County Courthouse. What part of the courthouse? In Mr. Davis's office? Pardon? In Mr. Davis's office. No, there's too many of us. We went to a courtroom. Okay. You went to the courtroom for your review. Yes, sir. Okay, did you get in the witness stand? Yes, sir, I did. During your review? Yes, sir. And where were the other officers during your review? 
they were moving around different parts of in the courtroom, somewhere in the courtroom, somewhere in the jury box, wherever they got comfortable. Some sitting in the jury box. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Was there somebody sitting in the judge's chair? Yes. Somebody from the district attorney's office asking you questions? Yes. Somebody from the district attorney's office cross-examining you? Yes. And the other officers are out there in the courtroom while this is happening. They were all in the room. Yes. And they were listening. Yes, sir. And you're listening to other officers testify. Yes. And are people making objections? There was, I think, one or two objections. And did somebody rule on them? I don't remember if there was a ruling or not. Well, who was the judge? Mrs. Mrs. Wallace was the judge. Her first name is Sherry. I'm not sure of her last name. Sherry was the judge. Yes. Did she have on a robe? No. Okay. I think she was dressed. She didn't have on a robe. Okay. I meant a judicial robe. No, sir. I didn't mean a house robe. No, sir. How many officers were in on this, what you have called a review? You want, you want me to guess at it? Yes. 10, 12, maybe. That's the best you can do. Yes. Okay. And did they tell you how you did? No, nobody told you how you did. No, sir. Did you tell any of the other officers how they did? No, not that I know of. And when did you do this review? A month ago. Okay. And at that time, I guess y'all had been instructed that we're all going to go down to the courthouse at a certain time. Yes, sir. I got a note. And you knew the purpose of that meeting. I did. Was to go down there. Yes. So you could fully and completely review what you knew about the case. Well, I knew it was my responsibility to know a portion of this investigation when I went down there. And did you think it would be your responsibility to read your report prior to going down there? No, sir. I never read a report from the stand. No, before you went down there. Before I went down there? Yes. I reviewed that piece of paper that you have. The lost one or the found one? The exact copy, the one that you have in front of you, is what I reviewed. How did you do that? Did you call it up on the computer? Yes, sir. Okay, but the one that was most complete was the handwritten one. That's correct. Okay, but you didn't think to go to be complete and to be fair and to be full while you're having your dress rehearsal with the district attorney. It didn't occur to you to go back and review your most complete report. Everything that I felt in my opinion that was vitally important to this case was on that piece of paper. Okay, That's what I reviewed. So you didn't, in other words, you didn't think it was important enough to go pull out the written one. I didn't have it. You didn't know that? I turned the original in, sir. You didn't, the handwritten one, the handwritten one had been turned in. I didn't have it. My question is simply this. You didn't think it was important enough to go and read your most complete report prior to going down for your review. I didn't have it. It wasn't available to me. But you didn't know that at the time, did you? No, I didn't. So had you sat at this review in December and said, you know, I really, 
I want to be complete with the DA and I want to, maybe I ought to go read my written report. There was nothing that would prevent you from doing that, was there? No, I didn't ask for it. And you didn't do it. I didn't do it. Didn't even occur for you to do it. No. Okay, what's the purpose of reports? To chronicle events. Is that because people's memories are faulty? That's true, yes. And so as a matter of fact, that was why you did the handwritten report because you thought of some things and the handwritten report made it more complete, some things that you had even forgotten. Other than those two mistakes, my handwritten report is almost verbatim with that thing in front of you. Your testimony today is that you know that the missing handwritten report is just the same as this typed one, except for your errors, except for those two that I pointed out. And you recall two errors? Yes. You don't recall any other errors? No. Is it fair to say that during this exhaustive search, both in the morning, in the daylight, in the dark, and in the daylight, the only significant thing you saw of any significance in your judgment was this sock? That's correct. And that's the only thing that you identified as saying, quote, I think this is an important piece of evidence or a piece of evidence, take out the word important. And that's correct that possibly might relate to this crime. That's correct. The only one, the that's the only one. And the only piece of evidence that you identified, you made an error about who picked it up. I misnamed the officer that picked it up. That's correct. One piece of evidence, one error. Yes, sir. Okay. Now at the review, you didn't see those knives, these knives, did you? No, I didn't. They did not, as part of your testimony down there in front of Judge Wallace, nobody showed you these knives and said, are they important? Did they? Nope. They didn't say, did you see mud on them? Did they? I volunteered that information. Did you volunteer that information about the knives that weren't there? The knives question was asked to another officer. These knives you were, were not present? They were not present and you did not see them at the dress rehearsal. That's correct. Well, did they have a court reporter at this dress rehearsal? A dress rehearsal, the review, the review, I'm sorry, the review. No, they didn't that I know of. Well, did they videotape it? No. Tape record it? No, not that I know of. Okay. But those knives weren't important enough to talk about at the review, were they? They came up, but not in my testimony. Well, it didn't come up enough to bring them down there to talk to you, did they? To physically bring them? Yes. No, because you had not seen them until you got to Kerrville. That's correct. So all of this detailed description that you gave us about mud and flowers and what you call that stuff that you put on the ground edging, edging that it was cut and all of these details that you have described to us that you saw from six foot, you didn't testify about any of that down at the review. No. Okay. At this point, Mr. Mosty says, pass the witness and Mr. Greg Davis begins the redirect where he says, when you came to that courtroom that day, you did tell me about those knives, didn't you? 
Yes, sir, I volunteered that information. And you did tell me that they had mud on them. Mr. Mulder then says, Judge, we are going to object to the leading. Mr. Mosty says, we object. The court says, can only one attorney make the objection? Mr. Mosty is doing the examination. If he will make an objection. Mr. Mosty then says, Your Honor, I would object to that last statement as leading. The court then says, Well, I will sustain the objection and I will ask that the question be rephrased. Mr. Greg Davis says, Yes, sir. Sergeant Ward, would you tell me whether or not that day you told me that those knives had mud on them? Yes, sir, I did. And tell me whether or not you told me at that time where they were in the yard. At that time, sir, I described that scene exactly as I have described it today. Okay, that's all the questions I have, Judge. Mr. Mosty then gets up to do a quick uh, recross and asks, uh, did you think that it was important enough at that time that maybe you ought to write a little report about the knives and the mud and your conversation with Mr. Davis? At that time, sir, and today, I maintain those knives right there have nothing to do with this crime, and I did not ever write a report on it. I couldn't be clearer that that's what you maintained, and I didn't write a report. My question is, after you and Mr. Davis talked about the mud on the knives at the review, you didn't think that the conversation was important enough to write it down in a supplemental report. No, sir, I did not. Thank you. Pass the witness. Mr. Greg Davis says no further questions. And the next one to testify will be Gustavo Guzman Jr. And again, at that at the time in 1996, he's 18 years old. And he is the one who lived at 5706 Willowbrook where the garden tools were found. And this is his testimony. And the direct examination begins by Mr. Toby Shook still. Um, would you give us your name, please? Gustavo Guzman Jr. Okay, you, and then the court interrupts and says, you're going to have to speak louder, slower and louder. The acoustics aren't the best because that lady there on the end has to hear you and all these lawyers over here have to hear you. Okay, so just lean up into that mic. You're going to hear your voice echoing. And the witness, Gustavo, the court says, state your name again and spell your last name. Gustavo Guzman Jr. The court then says, no, they still can't hear you. You've got to get your voice way up there. The witness then says, Gustavo is my first name. Guzman, my last. Gustavo, G-U-S-T-A-V-O, Guzman, G-U-Z-M-A-N. The court then says, all right, go ahead. Mr. Toby Shook then says, all right, you need to keep your voice up loud and clear. Okay. Okay. How old are you? 18. And where do you live? Roulette. Okay. Well, where do you live in Roulette? It's called a, well, what's your address, your street address? Well, it's 5706 Willowbrook. Okay. And is that a house or apartment? It's a house. Who do you live there with? My mother and my brother and sister. And how old are they? They are, I'm not sure. They're one is five and one is 10. Okay, so you're the oldest? Yes. 
And do you go to school? Yes, sir. Where do you go to school? Lakeview Centennial. Okay. How long have you lived in your house? About five years. Okay. Let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 7. Do you recognize this as an overview of your neighborhood? Yes, sir. Okay. Look there on your street, Willowbrook Street, where it's marked. And can you see your house? Mm-hmm. Okay. Could you point it out for us, please? Right there. Okay. You're talking about this house here. Yes, sir. Is there a white gate around the backyard? Mm-hmm. Okay. The a juror then speaks up and said, is that the yard or the house? And Mr. Toby Shook says, I think that's the house right there. The juror then says, okay. Mr. Toby Shook then says, you live on Willowbrook, right? Yes, sir. This street right here? Yes. Okay. And behind you is the street one over Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. And 5801 Eagle Drive, as we can see here, marked off on the corner. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So you would be, I guess it would be if you're going down Willowbrook, one, two, three, four, five houses down on Willowbrook, right? Yes. Okay. Now you were living there back on June 6th, 1996. Is that right? Yes, sir. With your mother and little brother and little sister. Yes, sir. Let me turn your attention to that date. Well, let me move you back to Wednesday, June 5th and ask if you were out that evening. Yes, later that night, a couple of friends from the neighborhood went to go play hockey. Okay, what type of hockey were you playing? Roller hockey, okay. Is that something you do a lot? Yeah, and where do you play? At the high school, Lakeview. Okay, and do you remember what time of the day you were playing? Not precisely. It was late, about 10 to 12. The court then says, excuse me, the object of this is to hear your testimony. Now, every time you echo in there, you get quieter. That's not the way to do it. You want to get louder so they can hear you. Okay. The witness then says, okay. The court says, so lean into it, speak. You're going to hear your voice resonate. Don't be alarmed. It's quite normal. Everybody has to hear you. Okay. The witness then says, yes, sir. The court says, let's try it again. Mr. Toby Shook then starts, were you playing late that night? Yes. Okay. That's good. How did you get home? A friend brought me home. Okay. And where does he live? On Eagle Drive, just down a couple of houses. Down from you? Yes. Okay. And well, let me get out the exhibit here again. If we're looking at Eagle Drive here, using the Routier home at 5801 as a reference, which way down Eagle Drive does he live? The other end. This end? Yes, sir. About how far down? Just stop me when I am there. Right there. Right in this area here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And was he driving that night? Yes, sir. Okay. And did he drop you off at your house? No, we went to his house and I just walked home. Okay. You drove the car back to his house here on Eagle Drive. Yes, sir. Which way did you walk home? Through that, through the yard. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. I cut through the yard and down the alley and then went to my house. Okay. And then you just cut down the alley to your house? Yes. Okay. 
Now, do you remember what time that was? Between 11 and 12 or 11 and one, I don't know. Between 11 at night or one in the morning? Yeah, yes. Were you keeping track of the time? No. And what did you do once you got in your house? Watch TV in the kitchen. Okay, do you remember what time you went to bed that morning? No, it was late. Was anyone else up in the house? No, sir. Okay, when you took a walk down the alley, did you see anything unusual? Nothing. Hear anything unusual? No. Okay, was anything going down at the end of the block where the routiers lived? No. You didn't see any police cars? No. Okay, later that morning, were you awakened by some police officers? Yes. Do you remember what time that was? No. Okay. How were you awakened? I wasn't awakened. I was still watching TV. Still watching TV? Mm-hmm. In the kitchen. And I saw through the window the police officers with their flashlights. Okay. And then I just looked out the window and let them do what they needed to do. You saw some police officers with flashlights? Yes, sir. And where were they looking with their flashlights? On the grass and through the fence. Okay, which window are you talking about? Well, first I saw them through the kitchen window and then through the back door. Okay, were they behind your house then? Yes, sir. In the alley? Yes, sir. Okay, did you go out there at any time at that point? No. Okay, what did you do then? I just ignored them. I just went back to sleep. I mean, I then, I went up and went to sleep. You went upstairs? Mm-hmm. Yes. And went to sleep? Yes. After that, did someone awaken you? Yes. About what time was that? I don't remember. Was it light or dark out? Dark. Okay. And how were you awakened then? They knocked on the door and woke me up. You got woken up by a knock on the door? Yes, sir. Who was at the door? A police officer. I don't know who. Okay. A Rowlett police officer? Yes. Did he ask you some questions? Yes. And what did you tell him? I didn't see nothing unusual. Okay. Same thing you told this jury? Yes. Okay. Let me ask you, in your backyard, had you and your mother been doing anything out there recently? We were doing gardening. Okay. When had you been doing gardening? Maybe a week before. Okay. And what type of gardening were y'all doing? We were putting edges, edging around some bushes. Okay. Where were these bushes located? Along the fence. Okay. The back fence. The back fence? Is that the fence that runs along the alley? Yes. Okay. Could you describe your fence? White metal has gates. Okay. Has gates. Mm-hmm. And it's metal. Mm-hmm. About how high is it? About six feet. Okay. And are there gaps between the, bar the bars? Yes, sir. About how wide are those? Five to six inches. Okay. And you were doing your gardening along that back fence. Is that right? Yes, sir. What type of gardening were you helping your mom with? We were laying down some edging for some bushes that were kind of messy. We were just making it look nice. Okay. What do you mean by edging? Plastic. We were separating the bushes from the grass. Okay. And 
how were you doing that? We would make a little hole. We would cut little holes in the ground and then lay the edging down. Okay. Were you using any tools? Yes, sir. What type of tools were you using? Knives, spoon, and a shovel. Okay. What type of knives? Kitchen knives. Okay. Where did you get those from? They were just laying around in my house. Okay. We got them from the kitchen. Okay. Were they old or new knives? They were old. Okay. And what did you do with the knives? We left them there afterwards. Okay. But how were you using them as tools? We would, if the shovels didn't work, then we would use the knives. Okay. And how would you use the knives? We would cut deeper into the ground. Okay. And then the shovel couldn't go too deep. So we used the knives. Were you digging in the ground with the knives? Yes. And were you digging in dirt? Yes. Okay. Did you have any rope out there? Yes. And what were you doing with the rope? We would tie one end of the rope to a knife and the other end of the rope to another knife and then extend the rope and the knives would make a straight line. Okay. There in the dirt along that plastic rail you were working with? Yes. Okay. And you said you were doing that work when? About a week before this happened. Okay. Did you finish the work? No. That you were doing? No. Okay. What did you do with the knives and the rope? We just left it there until next week. Okay. They were still in your backyard? Yes. And where were they located? In the back, in the backyard, along the fence. Okay. Along that back rail? Yes. Okay. Were they, where were they? Stuck in the ground or laying out? I don't remember. I mean, they could have been in the ground. I'm not sure. Okay. But they were in that back area. Yes. Okay, Gustavo, let me show you what's been entered into evidence as States Exhibit 22 and 21. Do you recognize those? Yes, sir. Are these the knives that you and your mother were working with? Yes. The same ones that you had laying out there by the back fence? Yes. Okay. The ones that you were using with the rope? Yes, sir. Okay. Were they as clean as this when you left them out there? No. Okay. What was on them? I mean, they were clean when we started off, but then after a while they got dirty. Got dirty with mud? Yes. Okay. And were they laying out there that night when you went out to play street hockey? Yes. Okay. Did you go out in your backyard sometime after the police woke you up? The next morning. Okay. Or the next day. The next day. Yes. The next day. Okay. And did you check on those knives? Yes. And why did you do that? I thought maybe, you know, the murderer might have used them. Okay. Did you hear about what happened down at the Routier home? Yes. Okay. And did you think about those knives that had been laying in your backyard? Yeah. So you went to see if they were still there. Mm-hmm. Where were they located when you went out there? Same place. Same condition? Yes. Did it look like they had been moved at all? No. The same place you had left them? Yes. What did you do then? I just got close to them and checked them out to see if there was any blood or anything. 
I looked and they weren't, so I just left them there. Didn't see any blood on them. No, just left them where they were. Yes. Did you ever finish the gardening? No. Okay, later on, well, we met a couple of times. Is that right? Yes. The first time when you were shooting basketball behind your house? Yes. And you have met investigator Basillo too. Is that right? Yes, sir. Did sometime he come and get those knives from you? Yes, him and some other officers. Okay. And do you recall when that was? I don't know what was the date. It was during school. Okay. And did you turn those knives that you just looked at over to them? Yes. Okay. And then I talked to you a couple of times about what you, the events you have testified in front of the jury on. Is that right? Yes. Okay. What day did you get down here? Monday of this week. Okay. Monday or Sunday. I'm not sure. Sunday? Yes. Okay. Did I talk to you then about the knives? Yes. And I talked to you one other time, I think, about the knives. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Other than the knives in this incident, you didn't see or hear anything else in the neighborhood that evening? No. Okay. And do you have any idea what time it was that you got in? No, I can't be precise. You didn't see any police cars or flashing lights or anything like that, did you? Only afterwards when I was going to bed, after you saw the officers with the flashlights. Yes, okay. Mr. Toby Shook says that's all we have, Judge. And at this point, uh, Mr. Richard Mosty begins his cross-examination. Mr. Guzman, I just have a couple of things. What grade are you in school? A senior, 12th grade. Have you missed a week of school? Yes. You aren't on a block schedule, are you? Yes. You're going to have your work cut out for you when you get back, aren't you? Yeah, I know. All right. Well, what? I think I missed the name of the friends that you went and played hockey with. Who are those? Carrie Keith. Carrie Keith? Mm-hmm. And who? Corey Keith. Brothers, I guess. Brothers. Anyone else? I'm not sure of the rest. There's always different people. Okay. Are those the ones that you went and drove back with? Yes. And if I understand you right, you left their house, I guess, out through the back way? Yes. And you go down the alley? Yes. And then do you go in your house through the back way? Yes. I guess there's a gate in the, yes, I mean the my metal gate. Okay. Is that the metal gate that faces the alley? Yes. Was it locked? Unlocked? Unlocked. It's unlocked. Yes. Did you lock it when you left? No. So it was the time that you, when you saw the police officers out there with their flashlights, the gate was unlocked. Yes, it was open. It was open even? Open. Oh, okay. You didn't even close the gate that night. No. Okay. Now, then you, and I missed a little bit. I know that you said there was a knife in the backyard. What else? Two knives? Yes, two knives and a spoon. And we used a shovel, but we put that up in the little shed we had. Okay, is that a big spoon? Yeah, a big spoon. 
Okay, and were y'all using that to, to scoop out the mud and dirt? Okay, and did I understand you that you could dig into the dirt a little easier with a knife than with a shovel? Yes, we would use the shovel to make a big cut and then the knife to dig out the little stuff. All right, and how big a shovel was this? Regular shovel. Okay, it was the narrow type. The sharp shooter, is that what those are called? Mm-hmm, the sort of thin ones, I guess, yes, that you can dig like one little plant and it's longer than it is wide, yeah. And was that there right beside the knives? No. Where was it? In the shed. It was our neighbor's. So we gave it back to him. So it had gone back to the neighbor's by the time all this happened. Yes. Was there a screwdriver out there too or not? Yes. There was? Yes. And was it there with the knives? No. Where was it? We put it up. It had gone back to your tool shed? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if I understand, and you went back out the next morning to check it, yes, because your curiosity had been raised by that time, hadn't it? Yes, okay. And you're certain that that screwdriver wasn't there. No, I'm not certain about that. You're not certain about that? No, but you are certain the knives were there, yes. And you are certain that the shovel was not there. Yes. Now, at what point did somebody pick up those knives? I don't know. It was a while later. Did y'all pick up the edging that y'all had and put it back in the garage? Yeah, in the shed. In the shed? Yes. Okay. And then did the knives go back inside the house? Yes. And somebody washed them up? Yes. And they went back to a drawer, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you actually hand them over to the police? Yes. Did you go to the kitchen drawer and get them out? Yes. And when was that? I'm not sure of the date. Within the last month? Yes. Okay. And that was Officer Basillo? Basillo. And were you able to recall exactly which knives you had out there? Yes. The knives, I remember exactly which knives they were. So you went to the kitchen to the drawer, drawer, and got those two knives. Yes, sir. Okay, did anybody make a note of that date? Did Bocello do anything like write his initials on those things so that we could tie down that date? Oh, an officer made me sign some papers and pointed out the dates. Was that a Rowlett Police Department officer? Yes, sir. He was in uniform or not? No. He was in a suit? No, he just came over. He was off duty. I think they called him up just for this. And he came with Bocillo? I'm not sure about that. Okay, so you think maybe you signed something a different day than the day you handed over the knives? No, I signed it. It was the day they picked it up. Same day, yes. And so whatever date you signed that, that's how we could go back and figure out, yes, sir, when you handed over those knives. Yes. But you think that was in December sometime? Yes. Okay. Mr. Mosty then said, that's all I have. The court then says, may this witness be excused? Mr. Greg Davis says, yes, sir. And that is the end of Gustavo Guzman's testimony. 
All right. So after all of this testimony, here's a few notes that I took uh, while listening to it back while I was editing it. Um, so let's first talk about Denise Falk, who was the ICU nurse. Um, the thing I know this is really nitpicky, but, you know, she was told to answer yes or no when she continued to answer with uh-huh or mm-hmm. But they really didn't hold her to that, though. Um, again, <laughs> not relevant really to the case, but just a little nitpicky. Um, Denise said that she asked Darley what Darley could remember. And Darley said that they were watching TV downstairs. But then Denise made a point to mention that it was a big screen TV. She kind of did that as an after the fact. Um so, and I've kind of seen this in, or heard this in earlier testimonies where they seem to really point out the fact that, oh, this family had this and this family had that. So uh, she also said, uh, Denise had said that Darley had told her that Darren was upstairs and that it was the five-year-old that was crying and woke up Darley. Darley then felt a struggle at her neck on the couch she yelled and the man as he's running he dropped the knife and then she picked it up and again everybody who seems to recount everything that they've spoken when they've spoken to darley always seems to mention that hey she's always talking about hey i picked up this knife now maybe she did or maybe she didn't i don't know i just know that during all of this testimony, it's definitely something that's constantly being mentioned while someone is on the stand. Darley then, then told uh, Denise that the man ran into the wine rack as he's running into the kitchen and it made a loud crack sound. Uh, Darley said that the knife itself had come from her kitchen and she knew that because it had a white handle on it and the nurse said that the only question she actually asked Darley was how she knew that the knife was hers and Darley had said it was because of the white handle now why is the nurse even asking her this so did someone ask her to try and pry some information from Darley it just seems like a really odd question that a nurse would ask unless, you know, she's just nosy. Um, Darley then told this nurse that she then went and turned on the light in her kitchen. And that's when she noticed the boys on the floor and screamed. And that's when Darley realized she'd been stabbed. And then when Darren came running downstairs and then began to perform CPR, this is also at the same time that Darley called 911. Nurse Falk also said that while Darren was doing CPR, according to Darley, he kept saying, hang in there, babies, hang in there. But in previous testimonies, this was something that Darley had said while she was on the phone with 911, not Darren. So, you know, playing devil's advocate or whatever is the prosecution trying to just confuse the jury. Now, Shook, the attorney, asks her, um, quote, when she, meaning Darley, when she told her this story, 
uh, referring to it as a story rather than something that actually happened. Again, making it sound fictional. Uh, The nurse noticed that as Darley was recounting this information that her heart rate, because she was still hooked up to monitors, her heart rate had increased as she was telling about what had happened. And again, in my mind, I'm thinking, why would a nurse be interested in her reactions to her story? I feel like something's up here. Um, Anyone who was in that room that day is always questioned, always about how emotional Darley was, always referring to the fact that she wasn't streaming tears down her face, but she appeared tearful or, quote, in Denise Falk's case, she said her eyes would get wet and so forth. Again, with the nurse, they focus on the bruising of Darley's arms. Um, And I personally, I really found this weird. I don't know if you did too, but I found it really weird that the nurse went home that weekend and made personal notes about her conversation with Darley. Now, she was questioned that, you know, hey, did anybody ask you to do this? And she's like, no, she didn't do this at anyone's request. Why would she do this? To me, it just seemed really weird. She took these notes and she put them in a safe spot in her apartment. And again, why? She then turned these over to the prosecution when they asked for them after they had found out about them. Now, this all seems a little fishy to me. You know, isn't there some rule where you can't talk about patients? Now, usually this would be covered under HIPAA, which is what we know today. The Privacy Act, the thing that we all have to sign when we go to the doctor's office, and this would cover that. But HIPAA didn't go into effect until 2003. So I don't know what protections were in place for patients uh, prior to that, but nonetheless, Um, evidently these notes, uh, when I first was reading through this, I thought, oh, she just went home and jotted down some information. They weren't just jotted down on a scrap of paper. These were three pages of notes. And Denise then also mentioned that Darley whined. And this is similar to the same term that another nurse had used earlier. Now, I don't know if that's just the way that they talk, you know, they say, oh, she's whining or, you know, I I just seriously don't know if it's just a common term that they would use. To me, it sounds very derogatory. Um, say somebody is whining. It's like they're, you know, it just sounds bad. Um, anyway, so let's move on to Sergeant Ward. Now, Sergeant Ward mentions that he is assigned or he assigned two officers to go to the alley behind the Routier home. And this was David Waddell, which we heard about in a previous episode. He gave his testimony and Dale Stevens. Now, Sergeant Ward had Officer Steve Ferry go with him and walk through the neighborhood. And we will hear from Officer Ferry in the next episode. They began their search up and down the alley behind the Routier home when it was still dark outside. This was around 4.30 in the morning and they had to use flashlights. A few houses down 
at 5709 Eagle Drive. Um, outside near the trash can, a white athletic tube sock was found. And on this sock, there was what appeared to be blood the size of a, quote, elongated nickel. Now, inside this garbage container uh, were grass clippings. And Sergeant Ward said that they didn't find any other sock or shoes or blood inside this garbage can. However, they also didn't say whether or not they had dug through the garbage can or dumped it out or how exactly they had checked those grass clippings. Next to the garbage can was also a storm sewer with a manhole cover. Now, evidently the manhole covers were locked. So the police weren't able to actually crawl inside. But he said that he had taken his flashlight and looked down the drain and that it, meaning the sewer, it went off at a weird angle, but he shined his flashlight down there and he didn't see any blood. He didn't see another sock or he didn't see any shoes. However, they never mentioned if there was actually running water in the sewer. Um, if there was, couldn't an item have been tossed in there and then carried away with the water? Uh, I was curious if it had rained in Rowlett either that day of June the 6th or even the day prior and there was absolutely no precipitation. So there was no rain that would have caused that. But even knowing that, I thought, well, do people tend to run sprinklers on their lawns? I mean, I'm sure that they did. And if they did, did they drain down that sewer? If that sewer went off at an odd angle, could he see around the angle? And if not, why wasn't it checked further? You know, I have so many questions about this. Um, after it was daylight outside, they again did a search of the alley, but they never mentioned if they also went back over to the sewer to check it again when it was light outside. Now, remember, 5709 was where they found the sock and it was near the trash can that was also near the storm sewer with that manhole cover on it. The yard where they found knives we're at 5706 Willowbrook Drive. And the reason this is important, um, because I know it sounds a little confusing when you first hear it, but in the event that you cannot look up these addresses right now on say Google Maps, it's very interesting. So the best way I can describe it is first to picture a lowercase m, as in mother, a lowercase m. The far left side of the M is Willowbrook Drive. The center of the M is the alleyway and the right-hand portion of the M is Eagle Drive. The alley or middle portion of the M runs behind the houses, both on Eagle Drive and Willowbrook. Now in this alley, you can walk by or see into the backyards of 5709 Eagle Drive and 5706 Willowbrook Drive because you're essentially walking straight down the middle of this M. So these houses, they're set up so that the alleyway, it's essentially where the driveways to the homes are. 
your garage is back there. There's no driveways in the front of the homes. So what's interesting about this is that that sock was found outside of 5709 Eagle Drive near the garbage can, again, in the back. So it's in the alley because this is where all the driveways to the homes are. And the home with the knives in the yard is directly across from this garbage can. It's a strange coincidence, but nothing that the police felt was of importance. And there were two knives found, right? The police said, hey, we looked into this yard. There were two knives there. They looked different from one another. Um, one of them was all metal and the other one had a wooden handle. Um, the officer said that the mud that was on the handles was fresh meaning it was recent or it was wet. He said that it appeared to be moist looking, but how could that be? According to Gustavo, which we'll get into here in just a second, they had been doing gardening about a week before, which would mean that the knives were out in the elements for a week. Why would they still have fresh mud on them? Now, they could have a whole bunch of mud Maybe they ran sprinklers in their backyard and, you know, the, the dried mud got wet. Who knows? But we'll never know, will we? Um, the officer also said that he immediately discounted these knives as being related to the case. One of the knives was laying flat on the ground and the other one was sticking into the ground with the handle still up in the air. He also said that the gate was closed and locked. But according to Gustavo, when he got back home, the gate was unlocked and open. Anyway, Sergeant Ward said that he was 100% positive that the knives had not been used in the crime due to where they were, what they were next to, uh, the edging, um, the work that was being done, etc. And he couldn't see any blood on the knives. But the defense then asked how far away the knives were from where he was and he said it was about five or six feet and he was still absolutely certain that there was not any blood on the knives however we know that the knives were covered in mud so how could he possibly know that uh, plus if a knife is laying on the ground for example all he can see is one side he can't see the other side of the knife so how can he be a hundred percent sure so let's get into Gustavo Guzman Jr.'s testimony. Um, he said that the night of the 5th, which happened to be a Wednesday, he had been out with some friends um, at the high school late, and he was at the high school around 10 to 12 o'clock at night where he was playing roller hockey. Now, he said he had gotten home um, somewhere around 11 or 12 and 1 a.m. He really wasn't sure. Uh, this a friend brought him home and his friend actually, well, actually didn't bring him home. His friend lived down the street on Eagle Drive, just a couple of houses down from where Gustavo lived. They don't mention an actual address of the friend. Um, they both went to his friend's house. They drove there after they were done playing roller hockey. And then Gustavo then said he walked through his friend's backyard, took the alley, and then walked home from there. And again, 
He said at this time it was around 11 or 12 and 11 and one o'clock in the morning. He wasn't sure. But when he did get home, he then watched TV in his kitchen. And at that time, nothing was happening down at the Routier home. At least that's what he had said. So he did notice officers in the alley with flashlights. So as he's sitting there in the kitchen watching TV and it's unsure, uncertain, I'm not sure what time it was that he noticed these officers back there, but he saw them looking through the fence um, behind his house. Um, Gustavo said he just ignored them and he went upstairs and he went to sleep and then was awoken by someone knocking on the door. Um, It was still dark outside. He doesn't remember what time it was. He said that he did see flashing lights and such by the Routier home as he was going to bed. But honestly, I'm kind of wondering why he wasn't more curious. Wouldn't a young man, I mean, he was 18 years old. Wouldn't he be super curious about what was happening down the road? I mean, even the neighbors who are all the people who lived across the street from the Routiers on actually Eagle Drive, everybody's walking out of their house. And here he's deciding, hey, oh, look at that. There's there's some lights. I'm just going to go up and go to bed. It just seems kind of strange. Um, But maybe that's just the way he is. Maybe he's just not. He just didn't care. Whatever. He did say that he had learned uh, later on. That day, the next day, it was kind of hard to tell what he was talking about. Um, But he had learned about what had happened at the Routier home. And then he said he went out to check on the knives, thinking that, hey, maybe this person might have used one of the knives in the yard because he heard it was a knife, which is kind of an odd thought to have. Um, He checked. He said he looked at them for blood, didn't see anything, but didn't even pick them up. He just left them where they were. So... The police officers did eventually did go and get the knives uh, from the Guzman home. But this was a month before the trial. So in other words, this was sometime in December. The crime happened in June. And by that time, they'd been picked up and they had been washed. Uh, Gustavo was certain when the police got there, he knew exactly which knives that the police were looking for even though they had been washed and put back in a kitchen drawer. So I don't really know why the police were all of a sudden going there and grabbing these knives because obviously, you know, anything, if it was related at all, um, any kind of evidence would have been completely gone by this time. But maybe we'll find that out in a further episode. On the next uh, episode... Uh, for lack of a better term, on the uh, Darley Routier case, we're actually going to hear from quite a few people. And mainly because these testimonies are relatively short. Um, The first one that we're going to hear from is Steve Wade, who was the patrolman who stood watch at the front door of the Routier home on the morning of June 6th. Next, we will hear from Steve Ferry, who searched the area around the Routier home on the morning of June the 6th. He was with Sergeant Ward when the sock was found in the alley at the rear of the house. Then we will hear from Jack Colby, a paramedic slash firefighter who, along with Brian Koshak, 
was in the first ambulance to arrive at the scene at the Routier home. And then right after Jack, we will hear from Brian Koshak, who was, of course, another paramedic who was in the first ambulance to arrive at the scene. And then finally, we'll hear from Larry Byford, who was a uh, paramedic and firefighter, along with uh, another man, Eric Zimmerman, who was in the second ambulance to arrive at the scene. And Larry is actually the final person to testify on the day of January 10th of 1997. And all of those will be coming up on the uh, next episode of the Darley Routier case. And again, I know I say this all the time, but I truly, truly, truly mean this from the bottom of my heart. I am so thankful for all of you. Thank you so much for listening to these. I know they're long, uh, but very interesting, right? Um, anyway, we will talk very, very soon and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.